What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Crazy Ant Farm. Holy moly, we're on episode 103 this 103. week. 103. We are rolling along, man. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. It feels like a whole new decade. It does. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, next week, 104, that's officially two years worth of episodes. Yeah. We'll be on to volume three. Yeah, exactly. Holy shit, bro. That's like so crazy. I know, I know. And the guests keep getting bigger and better every single week. man. Yes, they do. (laughs) I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Our guest this week is the one and only Austin Winsberg from Zoe's Extraordinary playlist yes i'm proud of you extraordinary Thank yes you. <laughs> extraordinary you. job Lord. extravagant extraordinary, extraordinary <laughs> exa- just amazing all of any adjective with an e basically explains the show though, yeah so it's fine it's exactly great. exactly writer creator anything above because this guy is just so amazing and he talks about what it's like to be a writer in this mega industry of entertainment it's just absolutely phenomenal Uh, the up-and-comers are really going to love this one because like he passes on a piece of advice to us personally which i enjoyed phenomenally and it was just amazing so i can't wait for everybody to hear that definite um but before we get this thing started you know we got to introduce ourselves uh the one and only jlo fantastic and the mouse yeah we're here to get a little crazy guys we're here to get a little crazy always get a little crazy i mean you know you know we got a lot of stuff to talk about i mean bob bob stepping down but the oh another my bob gosh. stepping up yeah <laughs> Okay, yes, it's, it's Bob Squared. Yeah, it's I Bob mean, Squared. You know, that's how they should have done the conference call, Bob Squared. Maybe maybe it was like that. He was like, okay, maybe I, I'm going to step down, but I need another Bob in my place. Right, right. <laughs> Who can replace Bob except for Bob? Exactly. You know, um, I did hear, I did hear though, and we'll get we'll get into this. We got a couple of things before that. But I, I did say, I did hear that they referred to each other as Big Bob and Little Bob. When that's they were hilarious. Doing the, you know, when they were doing the conference call. Yeah. So. You know, but we got to start off with a couple of douchebags. Yeah. Uh, but good news about one douchebag. Good news. Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. Convicted. That's right. Convicted rapist, y'all. Mm-hmm. It's about fucking time. Right. That's all I'm saying. This has been going on for how fucking long? Weinstein, convicted rapist. Yep. That sounds good, doesn't it? Doesn't it? it? Oh my gosh. Finally. It good. This little wuss, though, says he doesn't know how it happened in America because mm. he's innocent. Mm. Okay. <laughs> no, sir. No, sir. You are not innocent. And um, yeah. I. I but but uh, not in prison yet. Yeah. Which I, I, a lot of people are upset about, including some of the jurors. Apparently. Mm-hmm. Um. For anybody who doesn't know, he claimed to have some heart palpitations and some issues with the heart. So he's currently in a swanky little room, from what we understand, in Bellevue Hospital, yeah. as opposed to behind bars yet. Mm. So, um, from what I hear, though, the judge and several people are getting a little testy about that. So, yeah. I'm betting he's going to be behind bars soon. Yeah, seriously, seriously. And then, from what you've told me and from what I've read, this judge, judge wasn't taking any shit. Like, he does not care about this motherfucker. No, no. His his defense attorneys argued that he should stay released on bond de- pending his appeal mm-hmm. because of his medical issues, and the judge immediately ordered him to be handcuffed and taken to jail. Well, good. So, um, and so that's why I say feigned the yeah. palpitations, because that motherfucker knew he was going behind bars. He's like, I gotta stay out. So. Exactly, exactly. Well, these aren't the only charges he faces. He still faces the additional charges for Los Angeles 
process, which hopefully now that he's convicted in New York, this will make things much more smoother to get him convicted in Los Angeles. I think so. And there's a couple of people that were denied the right to testify in the New York trial that are going to testify in the L.A. trial. Yeah. So, you know, more witnesses coming forward and saying, hey, he raped me too. Mm-hmm. Um and while they didn't convict him on the most serious charge with uh, concerning Annabella Shiora, the jurors are starting to speak publicly now, and they say they did indeed believe her. There just wasn't enough physical evidence to do it beyond a reasonable doubt, right. but that she was credible and they believed her story. Mm. So we, we want to say that because I think a lot of people thought, oh, well, they didn't get him on the serious one. Maybe they didn't believe Annabella right. or maybe, you know, not the case. At least according to the jurors that have spoken out, they said, no, no, she was credible and we did believe her. There was just not not enough for beyond a reasonable doubt, which you have to meet in right. order to get convicted. So, But he's convicted anyway. He's facing, from what I understand, uh, five to 25 years in prison. Yeah. And if his health is as bad as he claims it is, five years is probably going to kill this motherfucker anyway. Yeah. So, um, and I, I, you know, I'm talking nasty about him and everything, but come on, this guy is a scumbag douchebag. Yeah, bag, exactly. He, be- he belongs behind bars and, uh, you know. And he shows no remorse. No. I mean, this guy is still claiming he was innocent. I was saying, oh, everybody deserves, you know, some sympathy or, you know, if he's rehabilitated or whatever. But no, if this guy dies in prison, nobody is going to give a shit. Yeah, exactly. Because he has no remorse. He still doesn't think he did anything wrong. Exactly. That's why nobody's given any remorse towards him because he just acts like he's just this god figure in the entertainment industry and he was helping all these people out and blah 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 it's like yeah. no shut the yeah. fuck up you did all this wrong shit and now you're gonna pay for it exactly and hopefully he is just the second of many i say second because bill cosby finally got it yeah and i'm just hoping this leads to less moonves and you know so many more yeah um certain actor on cbs that's still employed and on a show that probably shouldn't be agreed um, so you know we'll see we'll, we'll, we'll see but hopefully this makes it a lot easier for people and makes people more willing to come forward that maybe we're scared to come forward now yeah. because they know they can get a conviction now. So exactly. We will see. Exactly. Well, now moving on to the second of the two douchebags. Uh, <laughs> yes. Jesse Smollett appeared in Cook County Criminal Court this week and pled not guilty on all federal, federal uh, felony <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, charges uh, against him, uh, against the alleged uh, fake hate crime uh, back in January 2019. Yeah, so uh, this douchebag, that wasn't enough. Pleading not guilty, dude, come on, right. man. It, it's pretty obviously you, you faked it all. You're, it's pretty obvious you were guilty, but that's not enough. Not only did he plead not guilty and claim he still didn't do it, but then he petitioned the Supreme Court of Illinois to kill the latest charges, to have it all dropped yeah. because it's just not true. Mm. Um, they filed the motion for a stay and dismissal, uh, and... Dan Webb's February 11th move of six renewed charges and claimed that the recent Smollett indictment wasn't proper because the special prosecutor was appointed incorrectly. Uh. You see, what my favorite thing about that is that's not denying guilt. Yeah. That's trying to find another reason to have it dismissed, not because you're innocent, but because he wasn't appointed properly. Right. BS. <laughs> it's like, total shut bullshit. the fuck up. He like- too is going to jail. Exactly. Um, he, lied to the public, lied to everybody, fooled us all, basically. And yeah. Like, tried to blame it all on white nationalist Trump supporters, which, I mean, probably are definitely out there. But they did not do this particular incident. No, and, and, and when you look at it, all of the stuff that he tried to claim 
is happening in America, like you just said. There are hate crimes against LGBTQT. There are hate crimes against African Americans and, and people of color in this country. And everything that he tried to claim is, ha- is happening. Yes. But you just knocked it backwards a gazillion miles by faking a crime because now it's going to be harder for people to be taken seriously exactly. when there is an actual crime. So while your motive might have been whatever, you know, I want to say good deeds, you know, are paved with, you know, bad intentions, mm-hmm. but I, I just, or I had that backwards, bad intentions, <laughs> you know, I mean, bad deeds are paved with good intentions. Um, maybe his intent was good, but it was a bad thing to do and it, and it fucked the whole movement up yeah. uh, in my opinion. So, and now he's facing, I guess, t- a decade in prison if mm. found guilty. Which I think he's going to be found guilty. Yeah, I mean, definitely I, not coming back for that Mighty Ducks reboot. No, <laughs> no, no, he is not coming back. Um, but his sister's kicking ass though. I yeah, mean, she, she's doing good. Black Canary and Birds of Prey and yeah, stuff like we'll that. We'll say but. that, but yeah, I mean, notice how she's not saying anything about that. She's completely living separate lives from her brother. Well, smartly so. Yeah, yeah smartly so. Hey. So, okay, douchebags one and two. Uh, that's the news. And uh, we had to say it. We've been following both these cases, and you know we have, we've made our opinions clear on them. And you can agree or disagree with us, but that is what it is. And you know, laced with opinion, but also it's all fact. Yeah, all of that happened, and there it is. Exactly. Oh, okay. Now the biggie that we were talking about at the top of the show. I'm worried about this one. Yeah. Me and you have been talking about this for a year, year and a half, easy, pretty much since the beginning, since we started this show. Who was going to replace Bob Iger? Right. Who was going to do it? When was Iger finally going to step down? Well, he did. Sort of. <laughs> kind of, sort of. Still there. That's right. He stepped down as CEO, if you guys missed that, and I don't know how you would because it was like the biggest news everywhere. Yeah. Um. Even knocked like the, the, the campaign, the presidential campaign, out of the top spot for news yeah, for a little exactly. bit. Um, Bob Iger has stepped down effective immediately as CEO of the Walt Disney Company. However, he is still staying on in his role as chairman of the Walt Disney Company, and he will continue to oversee all creative aspects of the company yeah. moving forward. Um, his contract expires of December of next year, yeah. so he's basically got two years left, yeah. um, 18 months, 19 months. Um, Bob Chappick, the guy who's been running all the theme parks, uh, the, the resorts, uh, for Disney, been there twenty seven years. Yeah, I mean, he was there for the Eisner, yeah. you know, ring. Disney veteran, like yeah. for sure. Oh yeah, and he's and we should say different aspects. He was in direct to consumer product, you know, and the Disney stores, and he also did um, distribution for the home videos and and st- and stuff like that. So he, I mean, he, it wasn't just he was doing theme park stuff, right? You know, um, this guy's been there forever. Uh, in fact, to give you just a, a little bit of a background on him and why I think people are. You know, eh, about him, but but still pretty solid. About he's you remember back in the day with the animated films when Disney would release them for a special duration, and then they would put them in the vault as they called it, and they would go away for like ten years before you could buy them again. Mm-hmm. So you were basically like, oh shit, I better buy it now, or I can't buy it for ten years. That was him. Yeah, that was his idea to to kind of reboost people buying their yeah, products. Exactly. And stuff. Um. So I'm still worried. Yeah. You know, and I think um, that maybe Bob is a, is Iger. Bob Iger, Bob Chappick. Bob yeah, exactly. Iger, Bob Chappick. I'm Iger. I think Iger might be a little bit 
and I don't want to put words in because he didn't say this, but I just feel like he, he might not be 100% confident that Chappick is up to the role yet. Yeah. So, which is why I think he's staying on to to focus on the creative. But what everybody needs to remember is this, that when Iger came in way back in the day, okay, Iger was a suit. No idea when he was brought in to run ABC television how to run a television studio. No clue. When he was brought into a room with Norman Lear to, to work over a show, they literally didn't talk to him and forced him out of the room and told Norman Lear, no way we're working with this guy. He's fucking clueless. I think it all worked out pretty well with Bob Iger. Yeah. So I don't know. that. That's where I think Iger is doing for Chappick. I yeah. think he's going to take him under his wing and say, look, when I came in, I was a suit. I didn't know creative either. But now I do, and I'm going to make sure you are good to go creative before I before I take off. Right. So there it is. I mean <laughs> – Are you done? Are you good? I, I, I'm good. I'm just <laughs> – I'm worried. I mean you know me, dude. I mean for as long as you've known me, I've talked about – I can't talk enough about the Eisner reign and how he saved Disney back in 84, 85 from the takeover, what him and Frank Wells did, and then how uh, you know he was kind of like – wrapped up but set it for the future and Iger took over and just ran with it and kind of you know so I'm a little worried I, yeah. I mean what you have Marvel Lucasfilm and Pixar and everything is just rolling along man what if you make one misstep yeah one misstep yeah well I mean honestly I'm not that worried like you said he's staying on for the duration for the rest of his contract until December of 2020 and he's basically he's basically grooming him into that position but he's already the CEO technically so I mean I'm I, I have faith I have faith that he's going to teach him all of his ways but I also think that it's going to be really interesting because we talked about it that what's next for the Marvel shows what's next for right Marvel films Marvel uh our Star Wars films and Star Wars shows because I mean Rise of Skywalker uh, ended the saga of the Skywalkers. So, yeah. I mean, Star Wars has been that one family for so long. So, what is next? Are we going to focus on Jedi's? What, like, what is next with that? And like, I've been saying it for a while. Endgame, I think, is Marvel's peak. No, it's not. Nothing's going to touch that until maybe, like you said, Secret Wars, way right. down the right. line. But well, and that's, that's gonna, apparently the plan. They, well, they, yeah, they, yeah. No, but they, I think that's going to be a whole new landscape, and maybe the superhero genre might be out of date by that point. I don't I'm know. I'm just saying yeah, that's, because that's... it's been. What, 2008 was Iron Man? Yeah. So, yeah. I mean... 12 years. Exactly. It's but, already been 12 years, and I mean 10 more years until we get to that. Eh. What's going to... What, what? How we're going to tell is when... And I want to say, because I think a lot of people are talking about it, they're saying when Black Widow comes out or when Doctor Strange comes out. But we have to remember, both Black Widow and Doctor Strange were in the Endgame saga. Yeah. I think we're really going to tell... The future of Marvel, safe or not safe, the first time that there's a movie released that weren't a part of the Endgame saga. Right. And I, I, I want to say that's going to be The Eternals. Yeah. Will people flock to The Eternals the way they did with uh, – and to be fair, I think The Eternals is going to be the same testing ground that Guardians of the Galaxy was for, right. the, for the first Endgame saga. Because right. that was an unknown property that if you weren't well, a comic book plus, person – don't forget we have the new Mutants movie coming out as well. That's in post-production right now. So. Right, right. But that was, I think, the, the last movie in the Fox X-Men universe that – you know, while they did confirm that it will be a part of the MCU, it was still very much in that yeah. kind of a realm. So I, I, I don't know. But 
And that's weird because they're, yeah, they're billing it as a horror, but not a horror, and just kind of, I don't even know yeah, about Yeah, no that. one's really talked about it in a while, but I mean, honestly, what he has to prove himself in some way, and there was a rumor going around on Twitter that I think might be a perfect way to start proving yourself as the new CEO, maybe buying DC Comics. Yeah, that's the rumor. I just... I don't know. I, I, if AT&T, but then again, we've talked about this on the show and I've made my opinion clear on this before too. I just don't think that, that Stevenson and AT&T know what they're doing running an entertainment company. Yeah. yeah I've, I, I mean, I'm sorry, but it just seems like they don't. Yeah. They should really just like, because they're talking about breaking all kinds of things off and like, doing, I think you should take somebody that's currently running Warner Media, which is a part of AT&T and put them in charge of AT&T and run the whole thing as an entertainment conglomerate, which is what it is. Yeah. It's not a cell phone company anymore. You know, it's not a broadband company anymore. It's a fucking entertainment conglomerate. You got to start running it like one. Yeah. Um, just my opinion. But like I said, I mean, how are you going to follow up the the buying of Lucasfilms, the buying of Marvel, the buying of Pixar? How are you going to follow that up? And I think that is a good step towards that if they were ever to do something. But he would have to prove himself in the streaming game right now. Like he's going to have to prove something with the overall content that's about to come out for the streaming service. I think if they start making like – some phenomenal films for Disney Plus. I think that would be a perfect good step in the right direction for him as CEO. Unfortunately, though, we're not going to know for another two years because Iger's staying on for another year in complete control of the creative side of it. Right. So anything that happens on Disney Plus or even in the theaters over the next year and a half is going to be Iger. Well, I mean, and in that instance, I feel like it's probably going to be like, hey, watch me do this, and this is what you should do while doing this. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, he's going to be following him the whole way with I, the creativeness. So, I mean, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I would gonna... agree. I would agree that, that that watch me do what I do, and that's how the training is going to go down. But Iger, he made it perfectly clear that Chappick is going to be doing the day-to-day operations of yeah. the business. So he's going to be corporate. Yeah. I mean, so – Chappick better be ready because if you're going to learn from Iger how to do the creative while you're doing the corporate, that's going to be tough. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, the man's been there for 27 years and held up so many different positions. So I, I I have faith. I have faith because, I mean, everybody needs a chance in the beginning anyway. Like, yes, it's obviously kings to the magic king, or keys to the magic kingdom, but, I mean, you need a chance. You do need a chance, and, and we should point out uh, that Iger was not a unanimous choice by the board back in the day. Yeah, exactly. They were so he had to prove himself two or three times exactly. uh, to go in there and, and fight to get the position of CEO. Um, it was not a, you know, a unanimous decision or just handed straight to him. In fact, he was denied it a couple of times before he got it. Um, unofficially denied yeah. it. The, you know, the process was pretty extensive. If read his book and you, you'll, you'll know all about it. Um, so I agree with you. I'm just, yeah, I'm nervous, but, uh, you know, we'll see. I, I just, yeah, definitely, definitely. And how it was all brought about, like how it just broke on social media, Iger steps down and Chappick steps in. Like it, there was a lot of conspiracy theories around it. Like maybe it had something to do with Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, maybe he's yeah. going to like rat him out in some way. But guys, 
Bob and Harvey probably had meetings together. They never hung out. They're not the type to hang out. No, They're, I, they live in completely different worlds when it comes to that. Iger I mean, is like got to be one of the most morally fit individuals exactly. I've ever seen. If you read his book throughout, it's just it's all about that how he how he runs the business and how he runs his life is guided by morals. Exactly. Um. So, yeah, that lawsuit's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and to throw Eisner and Iger into it, like, just ridiculous. Um, and But I am worried about, though, because it was apparently one of these things off the books that just happened. Because Kevin Mayer was at Hulu introducing the new, you know, president of Hulu. Right. Um, and left abruptly to go back for this, oh, shit, somebody's taken over for, right. you know, Bob. That worries me because Kevin Mayer, for a long time, guys, you get he's in charge of Disney Plus right now, was the longtime rumored person to be taken over for Iger, and he's not now. Yeah. So we clearly know that wasn't the choice. Where does that leave Kevin Mayer? Right. Is he going to be like out of there? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, there was a whole bunch of speculation about a whole bunch of different people, like three different people. Remember the international content guy yep, they thought yep. about was doing it? And I mean, Bob, the, I mean, Mayor, like a whole bunch of people. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like they were all just rumors. Who's going to take it over? Especially over the last few years when he was talking about how he wanted to retire. He was going to retire before Disney Plus, remember? But yep. then, I mean, he wanted to see that through. He wanted to see Endgame through. And I mean... I, he just I felt like he finally just felt like it was time to give up the day-to-day operations because I mean think about it it probably takes a toll on you so I mean that's a lot of responsibility yeah, 15 years man exactly I mean, Eisner 21 years Iger 15 years and this guy's older than both of them when he's taking control so right. I, I don't know if this tenure is going to be anywhere near that long yeah exactly maybe like 10 years or something I like mean, that when you think about it there's only been seven that Chappic yeah. will be the seventh CEO of the yeah. Walt Disney Company in a century-long company. Exactly. Only seven CEOs. Exactly. So. It's going to be interesting. And, I mean, Wall Street was a little skeptical about how it was all done. We saw that Disney's numbers dropped a little bit. But, I mean, it's just – that's Wall Street being Wall Street. I think everything's going to be okay, especially while Iger's still there. But, like you said, the real test is going to be – what's going to happen after he leaves. Yep, yep. And so, now, and speaking, they've already seen some people leave. We know that uh, the former CEO, uh, Randy Freer of Hulu, bolted. Yeah. Um, and that's what, what I was just talking about, Kevin Mayer being uh, at Hulu. Um, Hulu's chief marketing officer, Kelly Campbell, has been promoted to president to take over for Randy Freer. Um so in her new role, she's going to manage Hulu's suite of on-demand and live streaming businesses. That includes Disney Plus and Hulu um, and their their TV and film studios to, that are providing content for the streaming services, uh, along with all of their other direct-to-consumer uh, integration. So she's going to be a busy girl. She will continue to report directly to Kevin Mayer, who now will report directly to Bob Chappick. Um, so we'll see how that plays out, but I, I'm I'm going to keep my eye on Mayer because I, I would not be surprised if we see him leave. Yeah, but we'll, we'll see. I don't I don't know. Yeah, and I mean, especially it being one of those rumors. I mean, maybe even the other guy leaves too. I mean, you know, some people are probably shitty that they didn't get the job, even though they probably had like some conversations about it. But I'm happy about this, um, the Hulu president promotion because we need more female executives, like executives, especially with Disney. Absolutely, and. She- She's going to have a nice little piece because she took over immediately. Yeah. And uh, one of the very first things under her reign is Hulu now has the exclusive 
U.S. streaming rights to Bong Joon-ho's Oscar-winning film, Parasite. Yeah. It's going to be exclusive, guys. This will be the only... If you want to see Best Picture winner, this is the only place you will be able to see it in the in the United States is Hulu. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I really want to see it, but I'm probably just going to wait until April now to yeah, when I mean, it hits Hulu. So, I mean, I'm super happy that they did that. And I mean, super, like social justice movie so it's going to be really cool to get to see that one and good first move honestly oh without doubt and hulu is kicking ass right now we talked about this a little bit last week with high fidelity and all their series and stuff they are just right now whooping ass yeah so yeah i think you're going to see another big jump in subscribers for hulu along with the you know a significant jump in subscribers for disney plus and man they are on their way agreed agreed and i mean things bouncing back and forth between disney plus Mm. and hulu i mean Mm. love simon which is originally planned to go on disney plus will now launch on hulu instead um in addition it's going to be titled Love, Victor, in which focuses on Victor, a new student at Creekwood High School, the same high school as set in the movie, on his journey of self-discovery, facing, facing challenges at home and adjusting to new citizenship uh, and struggling with his sexual orientation. Yeah. Which it kind of, in my opinion, this makes sense to move from Disney Plus to Hulu because Disney Plus is kind of, right now, a kids streaming service i mean you have the mandalorian but at the same time this is basically a pg streaming service as of right now i mean even with a little bit of violence that the mandalorian had i I still feel pg-13 is fine for that yeah you know um so yeah anything sexuality i feel like should not be on it in my opinion agreed agreed and i mean example high fidelity was supposed to be disney yeah, plus exactly and Hell after no. after streaming all of the high fidelity episodes like you know i binge watched them pretty quick and uh, i mean there's no, no fucking right way. sex drugs I and mean, rock yeah, and roll yeah <laughs> sex drugs and rock and roll prevalent in damn near every episode and i mean showing the sex drugs and rock and roll um in every episode so how that was even a thought for disney plus I, i'm beyond bewildered by um and we we should bring up uh hillary duff too lizzie mcguire yeah man. you know she recently hinted that as you guys know production was halted on that show and the uh showrunner was fired and the reason being is because it, they didn't they wanted to retwerk it a little bit rework yep. it going in a um, more mature way it seems like and the, is what they wanted to do yeah, but disney plus apparently like does that. not like that even though they had signed off on this show knowing what the new version was. Exactly. That's why I feel like they're a little shitty with that. Yeah. I feel bad for Lizzie and, you know, Lizzie. <laughs> not really Lizzie McGuire. Um, Hillary Duff. Yeah. Um, I feel bad for her because her and the showrunner, when they pitched this idea to Disney to begin with for the reboot, they pitched it as this adult version and right. what it was going to be. And they signed off on it. And then all of a sudden have changed their mind. Yeah. And I think that's shitty. So maybe, though, Hillary hinted that she would hope that they follow along the Love, Victor lines right. and take and it over it to, to Hulu. Hulu. So we'll see. But, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if that one doesn't move forward at all. I'm just going to be honest with it just because, like, since Hillary Duff is so involved in it and so involved with the producing side of things and i mean the showrunner was also the creator for the show so it's going to be really interesting to see how all that plays out so i wouldn't be surprised if that one just does not move forward well i mean the only reason i could think that they would move forward with it is because hillary is under a pay or play yeah and they don't move forward with it they're going to have to pay her that boatload of money anyway so i mean i don't know it's going to be interesting to see this next one took me by huge surprise because never like ever would we think it would be 
Um, I mean, Indiana Jones has been around almost 40 years, guys. Yeah, 39 right. years, right? The only people who have ever touched it are Spielberg, Lucas, and Harrison Ford, right? Well, not anymore. Spielberg announced he's not going to direct this one, this mm. upcoming Indy 5. He yeah. says he is stepping down. Uh, he will stay on as a as a producer, um, but he thinks it's time maybe a new point of view is told with the character, with the story. Um, so he's stepping down. He's for the first time ever, an Indiana Jones movie will not be directed by Steven Spielberg. Yeah, it's gonna bring on uh, James Mangold yes. from Ford versus Ferrari, and I mean and Logan, so many, yeah. and like I mean uh, Walk the Line, like so many amazing films. Uh, Three Ten to Yuma. This guy. I'm excited as hell for this. I'm hoping they can close this deal. I'm hoping Mangold indeed takes so It's so funny because we talked about it last week that Harrison Ford was talking about he wants to take this next indie and, and he wants it to to boom like a Marvel movie. Well, Mangold can do that. Yeah. Mangold will make this thing epic. So if you were ever going to pick somebody to take over for Spielberg on Indiana Jones, I think Mangold is so the right choice. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm not excited about this film. I, I don't want to see Harrison Ford be Andy, Indiana Jones anymore. No. I, you know what? And I wholeheartedly agree with you. And if anybody goes back and listens to the laugh show, I, I said that immensely over and over and over. Now I'm kind of excited, though. <laughs> like, no, like, seriously. If if anybody uh, can, can turn this thing into a winner, Mangold can. I mean, um, maybe. But this is also Harrison Ford we're talking about here. This man is stubborn as Fuck. So here you're bringing on a brand new director for what the sixth installment, fifth installment. Yeah. And what if I bet this thing doesn't even happen because no. of differences? Yep. No. Yep. All right, we're gonna disagree on this one. Yep. I think Mangold is gonna toy up the script. He's gonna he he's gonna rewrite the script a little bit. Or it's and he's gonna, gonna be, be like a um what was it? Uh, Snyder and Rami on Bohemian Rhapsody with that one or what? Who was that? Uh, yeah, yeah. You mean where he comes in and it, it's like where they're literally fighting on set, literally throwing shit at oh, each other. I, on I set. mean, I don't know. I think Harrison Ford will be respectful. Mangold, he he's got he's got to be like. I mean, everything we hear, one of the most beloved, you know, directors and nice guys in Hollywood. So I can't imagine they'd get into a tiff about it. Yeah, I don't know, man. I don't I, know. I but... think it'll be more of an incident like what happened with James Cameron taking too much control away from the director on the recent Terminator film. Yeah. I'm more worried about that than Harrison. I think Harrison will be fine. I'm worried about Ken Spielberg really give up control for yeah. a new director. You know, because he, he made it perfectly clear. Not only was he staying on as a producer, but a hands-on right. producer like, is ha- literally what he said. So that's I'm more concerned about that. Yeah. But. <laughs> oh, we're definitely going to see what's going to happen, man. We're definitely going to see what's going to happen. Um, Disney TV, ABC, has given a green light to a pilot to Valley Trash, a single-camera L.A. private school comedy headlined and produced by former My Name is Earl star Jason Lee, who was also in uh, Jane Silent Bob Reboot, just saying, and from speechless writer and producer Nikki Schwartz Wright, and fresh off the boat creator and executive producer, ooh, uh, that's all you. (laughs) Nantacha? Nan- yeah, let's Chachaka? go with that. Nantachaka Khan. Yeah. Not Chaka not Khan. No. Let's go with that. Not, yeah. not Chaka Khan. Yeah. <laughs> that is so not her name. We're so sorry. Um, it centers on a scrappy blue collar family living in the valley um, who experience a major culture change when their daughter gets accepted at this high end private school in LA. So, and nobody in the school wants anything to do with these poor people, you know, these trashy people that they view them as. Yeah. So, um, 
interesting premise. And I mean, I love Jason Lee, so I think it, it's going to be really good. Agreed. Um, so, you know, I know you're excited about this next one. I mean, I don't know. I'm a very love-hate because I'm not going to lie. Him as a person, kind of weird. Um, True. <laughs> Macaulay Culkin is coming back to television, guys. It's been a while. Um, is set to join the American Horror Story franchise in its upcoming 10th season. Yes. Sarah Paulson and Evan Peters will be coming back along with Kathy Bates, Leslie Ghostman, and Billy Lord. Uh, so many people just yeah, coming back. Man. I mean, honestly. So that's a huge cult classic yeah. television show. So. I mean, we'll see what happens. I see. think everybody's excited because, you, uh, you know, anybody who watched it knows Sarah Paulson and Evan Peters were not in season nine. They yeah. kind of took a season off. So the fact that they're coming back for 10 and then throwing Macaulay into the – but remember that movie? What, what was it? The Good Son? Yeah. That was a creepy motherfucker in that yeah. movie. So I think, you know, him in American Horror Story is going to be interesting for sure. Right. I mean mm, – mm. <laughs> Super interesting, man. But – Yeah, this next one, super interesting choice, too. Apparently, Chris Evans has been begging to be in a musical for a long time. I I hadn't heard that, but apparently that is the case, and he might be getting his chance. Right. Uh, as you guys know, we talked about this before. Warner Brothers is doing a, a reboot of um, the Little Shop of Horrors. You know, remember that one with Steve Martin back in the day, and uh, you know about the plant and uh, feed me Seymour and all that kind of good stuff. <laughs> right. Um, Chris Evans is apparently in negotiations to play a key character in Greg Berlanti's big screen remake of Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, nice. Yeah, he's going to play uh, dentist Orange Cervello, which Steve Martin played in the '86 movie, mm-hmm. and apparently Scarlett Johansson and Taron Edgerton are also circling roles to be. Uh, joining the cast That's along really with cool. Billy Porter who's already signed Billy Porter is going to be the voice right. of the plan yeah. so that, I mean that'll be fucking hilarious yeah right, right. Um, Chris Evans in a musical right I mean can he sing I don't know I uh, no, no idea, idea. <laughs> like that's the question no idea I mean but We'll keep it right. Great. If anybody can make him good, though, Greg Berlanti can make him good. So, exactly. I mean, it, it'll be good. Exactly. It, and I mean, Greg Berlanti, come on the show, man. I know your publicist just reached back out and said you're too busy, but come on the show. I mean, he does have like 5,412 shows. Like, uh, he's, uh, but he can spare 30 minutes. He can spare 30 minutes. That's what I'm <laughs> saying. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Netflix. Yep. Uh, we saw this. We were just talking about this because if you have Netflix and you've looked at it in the past couple of days, you most likely have seen this too. Netflix is now expanding the rollout of top 10 lists that are showing the subscribers the 10 most watched titles each day. So it'll tell you the 10 most watched movies in the U.S., the 10 most watched TV shows in the U.S., and then it's kind of formulating these lists based on what you're watching. Yeah. So um, that's interesting. They did say that they were going to start showing more data and providing more data to the content providers and producers. And um, this is a great way to do it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Especially for the customers, like seeing what genre that is attracting them the most and what is the number one rated drama, especially if they haven't started watching these shows. So I wholeheartedly agree. I think it's a great idea. Yeah. And just because, you know, I mean, we watch a ton of shit. I mean, with what we do, uh, you, we, you have to. Yeah. And uh, you think you saw everything, but now that these lists are up, like I saw two on the li- the top ten list of shows that I'm like, well, fuck, how did I miss that? Yeah. So no these idea. lists are going to be good. I mean, you know, you can see, shit, I didn't see all of the top ten. Right. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. I mean, oof, this next one, man. Coronavirus. Been, yeah. It even, it halted production on Tom Cruise's action film, Mission Impossible. Is this eight? Uh, seven. Uh, seven. 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 Oh, uh, which is... Uh, I'm stop- sure eight. Eight's coming. Yeah, I mean, 
of yeah. course. I mean, <laughs> six was the best one by far. I oh guess. yeah, um, I, I really enjoyed six. Um, but yeah, Venice, Italy is now uh, having an outbreak over there. 150 confirmed cases of the coronavirus in the country. The seventh film in the franchise was meant to shoot for three weeks in Venice with uh, Christopher McQuarrie directing. A spoke post person for Paramount. Paramount said that Cruz will not travel to Italy yeah. and has not. Yes, he was not over there shooting yet, and so they've halted production. And um, this is going to be interesting because um, it's affecting Europe pretty heavily and Asia. Yeah. Uh, we, we learned also that all of the, the movie theaters in China have been shut down due to this virus. And Mulan, Disney's pretty worried about because it was supposed to premiere in China, and that's looking like it's not going to happen. Yeah. So this is affecting a lot of movies and, and could potentially affect box office results for a lot of movies. So we are going to keep an eye on that. But, you know, according to the Orange Oompa Loompa, it's just kind of like the flu. Right. It's no big deal. <laughs> like, shut the fuck up. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, <laughs> we will keep an eye on it, though. Um... Oh, this next one. We talked about this. Your man. Your man crush. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> McDreamy coming back for a political thriller on CBS. They found his leading lady, apparently. Amanda Warren from Three Billboards Outside Ebbing is going to be a series regular opposite Patrick Dempsey in Ways and Means. We talked about this last week or the week before um, about the political thriller that he's coming back from. Um, so that's exciting. I yeah. mean um, – yeah, you know, you got to have a female lead. Exactly. I mean, McDreamy can't not have a female lead. Exactly. And she's a good – that movie was brilliant. The whole cast was brilliant. So I feel like she's going to go toe-to-toe with, with Patrick Dempsey pretty well. Yeah, I can't wait, man. I really can't. Um, this ne- I'm super excited about this next one because power is just freaking – booming and now that it's about to go off air we all know that there's going to be some spin-offs uh, especially for Keenan who was 50 cents character McKay Curtis yeah I is mean... coming on to be his younger self in the show uh, so we get to uh, see what he was like as a young kid growing up in New York and going through all of that crazy shit. So I'm really excited about all that. Yeah, me too. And I mean, there's like four different sequels coming. Yeah. Like, like it's going to be amazing, man. Stars is kicking ass too. Yeah. Uh, you know what was not kicking ass though? The voice return yeah. with uh, the Jonas brother. Yeah. And apparently it was the, the Jonas brother. The, yes. <laughs> stumbled a little bit in the their season premiere. It was the lowest rated season premiere in the history of the Which show. Which sucks because it was still entertaining. I, I bet. And we should say it still did win the night with the ratings. But anytime you start to see where it can't beat the year before, you know, that that's when you got to start to worry a little bit. So um, we'll keep an eye on that. Will, will Will that be something that maybe... I think the flirtatious back and forth between Gwen and Blake yeah. brought in a lot of viewers. Yeah. And I think they're going to miss that, and we'll see. Well, yeah. I don't know if the Jonas Probably. brother can keep up on that. Oh, my goodness. This next one, our friend, the phenomenal Shinola Hampton, yes. has been cast in NBC's multi-camera comedy pilot for Night School. Uh, wasn't that a movie? Yes. Kevin Hart is also making it a TV show, and he's co-writing it, and he's produced the film, and he will executive produce the pilot along with Will Packer, which is freaking phenomenal. Shinola Hampton is going to play Tiffany Haddish's Haddish's character, so I'm super excited about that. She's brilliant, and you know the show will be brilliant, and now she's got a new project to move on from after Shameless makes its final run, so it's going to be 
Damn funny. Damn yeah, funny. Exactly. Um, if you guys don't follow her, she's hilarious. So if you're thinking, God, shameless, but she's she's brilliant comedian too. It's going to be great. Um, we should talk about this. We brought this back up uh, a couple of weeks ago. Milo, this is us as Milo Ventimiglia is going to be doing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, shut up. I can get a bad name too. Um, he's doing the the Evil Knievel miniseries. Um, you, we talked about that. He's going to star in an executive produce. He has found his leading lady. Sarah Gatton is set to be opposite Milo uh, and David Crumholtz in this one. So yeah. I'm excited about this. Anything that that Milo does is usually pretty awesome. Yeah. And I was a huge fan of Evil Knievel. I was actually a Round for Evil Knievel. Um, so I'm excited about it. Yeah, showing your age there a little bit. A little um, bit, a little bit. <laughs> other things happening at NBC. It, for the Peacock, oh my goodness, they're raking in all this reality TV. If you're a fan of Cold Case Files, First 48, Storage Wars, American Pickers, uh, HL Aliens, like Curse on Oak Island, Pawn Stars, any of that, and uh, scripted drama, Project Blue Book, it is all coming to this streaming service. Yes, they signed a huge deal with A&E, so basically yeah. any of those reality unscripted shows on A&E are now going to be showing on, you know, freaking Peacock. So yeah. <laughs> there you go. Now you know where to go to find them. Exactly. Um, exactly. Uh, speaking of Kevin Hart, this guy is still killing it. Universal Pictures is developing a comedy, an action comedy with uh, Kevin Hart, Broad Cities, uh, Lucia Anilo, and Paul W. Downs, yeah. along with Kevin Hart attached to Star, the second feature film from Hart, Packer, and Lee, who we just talked about, their first film, obviously, uh, in Night School. So this one's going to be interesting. Uh, we'll, we'll follow along, but he's killing it right now. Yeah. Just action star coming out the wahoo with him. Exactly, exactly. And Amazon Studios is also killing it. Uh, they have partnered with Macro Television Studios uh, with Ava DuVernay's Array Filmworks to bring Octavia Butler's classic 1987 science fiction novel Dawn to the small screen. The first time this woman has been like adapted. Yeah. She's like a Hall of Fame author, but and this is the first time she's been adapted. This is pretty intense, though. An African-American woman who enlists the help of aliens to resurrect the human race 250 years after a nuclear war. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> that sounds intense, Yeah, man. it does. Woo, it's going to be good. Um, Macro, by the way, Charles King, uh, Raising Dion. He did Just Mercy with Michael B. Jordan recently. This guy is killing it man yeah good for him right Oof. um and i mean if to make it any better victoria mahoney who served as the second unit director on the, the recent star wars movie is going to pen the series and direct the pilot so no yeah yeah i think it's in good hands yeah seriously seriously and then stuff happening with amc network they have announced a comprehensive long-term distribution agreement with dish network and sling tv that includes continued carriage of AMC. I mean, you know, you got AMC, the BBC, America, uh, IFC, Sundance TV, so much stuff. Like, you know, it's all about the streaming game, so everybody's trying to partner up to try to compete. Yeah, because that would have been huge if any of the other streamers had picked that up away from there. So, I mean, they were definitely worried about that. The King. The King. The King still getting it done. Apparently, he's been making some waves with, you know, we got the new Space Jam coming up and, you know, Kind of like he's been he's been making moves in L.A. He yeah. said that's why he wanted to go to L.A. And apparently people are buying it because he is now seeking a new overall deal for his company, Spring Hill Entertainment. And apparently Disney, Universal, Amazon, Netflix and a couple others want him. They've yeah. all had meetings with King James and his team in recent months, and they're all trying to get this guy to sign an exclusive deal with them. Exactly. And it only makes sense. 
and he wants big money. Oh yeah, I'm thinking for he's sure. talking Berlanti money. You know, he wants a, he sure. wants a deal. So, um, good luck. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, he ends up with the mouse house. Agreed. I mean, that I think that would be best. It would be <laughs> king for a king. You king know. for a king. That's right. Exactly. Come to the kingdom, king. It's all good. <laughs> Hand the king the keys to the kingdom. Oh, it only shit. makes sense. That'd it only makes crazy. sense. Oh my goodness! But now it is time for our interview segment, guys. We're so excited. Austin Winsberg coming on the show gives a lot of advice for up and comers. Everybody is just gonna love this interview. Just a nice, humble guy, and this is another guy that actually might talk more than the mouth. Yeah, it's true. It's absolutely true. There's not many who do, but I feel Austin does. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I mean, it's it's brilliant. This guy is super nice, super awesome, and and he's created something that's really personal to him, and and you know, close to home to him, and and it's it's just booming right now. So we're excited to have him on to talk about it. Definitely, definitely. Let's get this thing started. Austin Winsberg, welcome inside the Crazy Ant Farm, man. How are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm good. How are you guys? Oh man, we're doing awesome, man. Hell yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are so excited about this conversation because we have got a lot of listeners who, like ourselves, are huge fans of Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, and we we cannot wait to talk to you about that. I have so many questions, it's it's not even funny. Um, <laughs> I'm here to answer almost all of them. Almost all of them, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> as long as I can get some of them answered, it's going to be awesome. Exactly, exactly. Whatever you want, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, what we like to do, though, first is kind of start off with a little introduction about who you are and how you got started in the industry and everything to kind of get our listeners up to date on if they may or may not know your background a little bit. So let's jump in. Uh, was writing and acting and entertainment something you always kind of knew you wanted to do from an early age or did you kind of discover it later on in life or how'd you get started in it, man? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how far back you want me to go, but I knew I wanted to do something in the entertainment industry since I was very little. I, I grew up in Los Angeles and I started off as a child actor. Um, I was not a very successful child actor, <laughs> and I may or may not have gotten fired from Punky Brewster when I was 10 years old. Oh, oh my wow. gosh, Punky Brewster. Um, you know, it's hard. It's one thing to get hired on Punky Brewster. It's a whole other thing to get fired from Punky Brewster. Right. Uh, yeah, I can uh, imagine. So I just always, and then another uh, notorious claim to fame early on in my career, if we can call it that, is I was also in the uh, movie Ghost Dad with oh. Bill Cosby. Whoa, there you go. So this is a, an early uh, infamous uh, appearance by Austin. And so I always had a desire and an aptitude to do something in the business, and I thought it was going to be on the acting side. But going back to like 11 or 12 years old, I started reading uh, Daily Variety, which was the entertainment trade magazine. Yes. So while all my friends were like off playing baseball or whatever, <laughs> I was like reading the trades and I would obsess over all the films that were in production in the back. Remember back in the day, they had all of the like, you know, these like every film that was shooting in LA or out of Absolutely. LA. And I would obsessively read the like the names of the movies, who all the players were. Mm -hmm. I knew all the names. I was kind of like a walking IMDb before IMDb. Yes, <laughs> <And> dude. <laughs> so awesome. I was just. No, I was going to say, I'm the same way, man. I remember when you actually had to pick up Variety to read it. It wasn't online. You know, you had to actually oh, yeah. get the trade. Yeah, dude. Yeah, no, I had a subscription. Yeah, like, me too. <laughs> I was like 11 years old or something like that. And so I just always, you know, and I started to become obsessed with certain TV shows really young. Like, I was obsessed with Free's Company when I was eight or nine years oh, old. Oh, definitely. I, I was into Silver Spoons and Different Strokes and Growing Pains and all those shows. But the first show that I remember being really into in a different kind of way was Twin Peaks. Yes. Um, Twin Peaks came on when I was in, like, eighth or ninth grade. 
And I just remember obsessively watching it and trying to figure out who killed Laura Palmer. And I, I was never like a, one of those, uh, you know, a really obsessive fanboys. Right. But I became that for that show. <laughs> and I would have, I would have all of the, like the maps and the characters on my oh, wall. Shit. And I read <laughs> diary, and I would do deep dives every week into that show. And that was the first time that I started to understand more of like a interaction with a television show. Sure. It's kind of a more engaged, engaged viewing experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of going on a tangent now but no, you're I, ended good. Up going to, I ended up going off i ended up going to theater camp in the catskills when i was 14 years old a very famous theater camp called stage door manor awesome and a lot of uh famous alumni have come out of there like natalie portman and bryce dallas howard mm-hmm. and john Cryer and josh charles and sean levy and all these people and when i was at that theater camp uh as an actor I met a friend who was this child writing prodigy, and he had been winning all of these young playwriting competitions all around the country, and at the time, I guess they still do versions of this, but you could submit plays when you were a kid to all these different festivals, and then you'd get professional actors, if you won, to do a staged reading of your play or oh, sometimes shit, put on that's a whole awesome. production of your play. And he started sending me his plays to read and I started reading them. And I was like, oh, I could do that too. So I started writing plays when I was like 15 or 16 years old. Probably about 16 is when I started. And I won this LA Young Playwrights Festival five times before I was 19 years old. Oh, wow. And there was something about writing that I started to feel like I could use more of my personality and still get more fulfillment out of what I was doing beyond just the acting in ways that I felt like I couldn't get from the acting. Mm-hmm. I think when I was acting, I was always, I'd, I'd get parts and plays and I'd do okay. And I stopped kind of acting professionally when I was around 14, but I would do all the theater and I was a theater major in college. But I would always kind of play to the back row. Sure. And I would always be, I'd always be thinking of what my next line was. I was never just living <laughs> organically in the moment or like reacting to what the other person was saying to right. me. I'd always be like, had a version in my head of how the line should sound. And so I never, Felt, felt like I was a really great actor, but I did feel like when I would write a play or a sketch or anything comedic or something like that, that I would kind of get a different sort of fulfillment from it, mm-hmm. and I would, I just felt like it was utilizing more of my personality, and I started to feel like I could get the same kind of fulfillment behind the scenes that I felt like I was getting being in front of it, and from that... I started writing screenplays in college, and then I convinced that friend to come to Los Angeles right after college. We became writing partners together, and we started, and we got an agent when we were 23, and we started writing on our first TV show when we were 23 or 24 years old. Yeah, that is amazing, man. I mean, I love the enthusiasm, and right away you know, hey, maybe this isn't working for me. Maybe the acting thing isn't working for me, but I've got to do this. This is my passion. I've got to find another way, and you jump right into the writing. And dude, hitting it so young, man, that's fantastic. Exactly. That's truly inspiring for me because I'm 23 right now and that is definitely where I want to be. I got some stuff in the works and that is definitely where I want to be. So I'm going to take a lot from this interview. <laughs> Just oh, that's it. great. Look, I mean, I have lots of advice about it too. So I'm happy to give you whatever two cents I can about my way in and how it worked and all of that. That's fantastic because we always have that in the show as well. So we're definitely going to get to that. And speaking of so young, I mean, you were also, if I did, if we did our research right here, uh, the youngest showrunner in ABC history at one point, right? When you had Jake and Progress on, you were like 27 years old with your own show, right? Yeah, 26 or 27. I think what what happened was, so my friend and I wrote on this show together called Glory Days, which mm-hmm. was a show on the WB before it became the CW. Right. And 
it was a Kevin Williamson show, the same guy who did Dawson's Creek, but he also did all the Scream movies mm-hmm. and the following, and he's done a lot of horror stuff along the way. And uh, we were brought on to that show. The show was kind of supposed to be like a soft drama about a guy who writes a book about his, his small town, and then he moves back to the small town, and but he hates him because of it. And after they picked up the pilot, we were going to be brought on as like the, co- the young comedy guys on this hour-long <laughs> drama show. Okay. But after they, after they picked up the show, they decided that they had enough kind of, at the time, I forget what, uh, Everwood and some other shows were on uh, WB at the time, mm-hmm. and they felt like they had enough of those kind of soft dramas, but Kevin was really the horror guy. Right. So they wanted to turn the show into more of a horror murder mystery show every week and they wanted to keep the same actors the same sets and the same writing staff but figure out how after the fact to convert the show into something it was never intended to be so our very first job was writing on this horror murder mystery show and we had it was really like trial by fire learning on the job how to like how to you know uh do those act breaks and the red hearings and the murders and the suspects and all that stuff, which was something that was so far out of our wheelhouse. Right. right. Talk and about that a was challenge. Our very first writing <laughs> job on a TV show. Wow. Oh, that's fantastic, I, though. I, I, I remember my darkest moment on that show was we had spent days trying to figure out a plot and a structure for one of these episodes, and we came up with this big twist at the end of Act Six that we thought really solidified the show, and we're like, okay, now I know how to break these kinds of stories. And I went home that night, and an episode of CSI was on television, <laughs> and they literally did our twist oh my goodness. as like a throwaway in the cold open oh. at the beginning of the episode. And the thing that we thought was like the big reveal was like a nothing thing for them. Hell yeah, at like, the beginning of the show. Not be writing this kind of show. Oh my so, gosh. So then the next year we got we wrote another spec at the time in LA or in, in writing. You know, you were really encouraged to write spec episodes of TV shows that were already on the air. Right. So. Our first two specs, I believe, were Malcolm in the Middle and that 70s show. And then we wrote a scrub spec. And off of the scrub spec, we got hired on this sitcom called Still Standing mm. that was on CBS for four years. And in the middle of year two of Still Standing, I came up with the idea that became Jake in Progress. And so I went from being a story editor, which is a low-level writer on Still Standing, to being the showrunner on, like, my third job. Yeah, that's Ooh. just, I mean, whew. Yeah, talk about that jump a little bit, man. I mean, was that a little overwhelming? Did you feel like you were ready for that? Or, like, what was that like? Or did the trial by fire from the last one, like, get you prepared? Exactly. For that? <laughs> that's so crazy. No, I mean, there's no way, like, I, I would say at the time, sort of ignorance is bliss, and you're sure. young, and you think you can do everything. And I don't know if I was really prepared for all of the different things that being a showrunner entails. I mean, you're doing 7,000 jobs at once. When you're just a writer in a room, your main focus is just, you know, especially if you're a low-level writer in the room, you're mostly there to listen and observe, and hopefully you can throw in an idea every now and then. But going from that to being the guy in charge is a completely different deal. And I think that I I went into it with... um, not you know having a little bit of experience and seeing what some of that was like, but I really didn't know what I was what I was setting being set up for. I didn't know what that looked like at the time. Sure, and then again, I, I, one of the things that we really like is the realism that we get from a lot of our yeah, guests. Exactly. And I love somebody who's had such success early is bold enough to say, yeah, no, I was out of my league. I, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, exactly. I, I love that, you know, because that happens sometimes. And learning right? by doing. I mean, we got the rug, I got the rug really pulled out from under me. So I had a very clear concept of what I wanted that show to be. Right. And the initial concept or conceit of that show was it was going to be, 24 had been on TV for maybe a year or two at that point. Mm-hmm. And 
my initial idea for the show was that it was going to be a romantic comedy version of 24, that we were going to take all the stakes and the importantness <laughs> and all of the things that happened on that show and apply it to a romantic comedy. Cause I've always loved romantic comedy. Sure. So season one was going to be the first date of this couple. And the entire season was going to take place over this one night, kind of like the movie after hours, mm-hmm. um, just on this date and everything that goes wrong over the course of this night. Season two was going to be their wedding day. Season three was going to be the birth of their first child. And you're going to take all these important moments in a relationship and dissect them minute by minute, hour by hour, as all these events pile on top of each other and using all the stakes and the craziness of those days. And that was the idea that got John Stamos excited. That was the idea that got the network excited. And then we went off and shot that pilot. And then in the middle of shooting the show, the regime changed at ABC at the time, and a new president came in. And he said, I'm picking up your show for 13 episodes, but I want to lose the girl and I want to lose the 24 concept. Mm. And I said, well, what's the show of that? (laughs) Right, exactly. And he was like, well, you know, John Stamos dating in New York City. Uh, Who doesn't want to see that? And so... On the fly, I mean, truly, the pilot episode ended with the two people leaving to start their date and mm-hmm. all of these loose threads that were going to play out over the course of the night. And by episode two, they, he just, they just wanted him dating in the world, almost to sort of ignore everything that happened uh. in the pilot. So I was like, at least let me do one more episode where I wrap up what I was planning to do over the entire right. season. And then we can start to get into more of like what his life looks like outside of that. And so they were like, they were like, okay, well, I don't really see why you need to do that, but all right. So they they let me shoot one more episode to wrap up that storyline ish. And then they wanted like there was a character on the show who was meant to be the antagonist that they liked so much that they wanted to be the best friend going forward. Uh, so I had uh. to figure out how to make the antagonist <laughs> into a friend. So there were all these challenges beyond just the normal challenge right? of being a showrunner, twenty six or twenty seven years old. I had to completely on the fly convert the show into something else than what I originally intended. Oh wow. my goodness! <laughs> wow. I mean, <laughs> that's so crazy. It is. You hear about it all the time, like you know that a project that what it starts off as is not what it finishes yeah. as, or you know you you do these revisions or you see these things, but to so quickly have somebody come in and say, no, we're going to just change everything, good luck. That's got to be just intense. I can't even imagine. And I mean, does that happen often? Does Big Brother kind of like poke their nose in often on it? Like if you're writing a show, does that happen often for somebody to come in and try to change it or at least change little aspects of it? Uh, I would say that is my normal experience. No. Oh, wow. And. And that, I mean, I've done this on the movie side. You know, I've been, I've been working this business a long time now. I've right. sold a lot of pilots and a bunch of movies along mm-hmm. the way, a lot of stuff that would get close and never got made. Right. And, uh, I mean, I, I, my, I don't even want to tell you how many pilots I've sold over the years, but I've sold everywhere, every network, and in cable and streaming and all of that stuff. And I would say that the bulk of the time, the majority of the experiences are the thing that you set out to do mm-hmm. somewhere along the way someone has a note or a two or three that derails the vast majority of the thing that everybody got excited about initially. Damn. And that the final product is not the thing that you set out to do in the first place. And so you, the constant challenge and the constant struggle when you're in the development phase, which I've been in a lot over Mm -hmm. the years, is how do you stick to your guns? How do you maintain the things that you think are important about the idea or the project that you're there to protect while also appearing to be a team player, Mm -hmm. while appearing to not be difficult, while being able to take the notes and to understand the notes that do actually make the thing better? And it's been a learning curve and a balancing act over the years trying to figure out how to go from 
okay, well, which of these ideas are useful, which of these actually do make it better, and if these things are harmful or perceived to be changing the, the fabric or the core of the idea in some way, how do you articulate that in a way that still shows that you're part of the team and that they, that you guys can all work together? Absolutely. That's I a mean, lot to balance, it, man. It is a lot to balance, but and I just that's why I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. I mean, because there's, like I said, there's so many people out there probably trying to figure that out. You know, they've got this great spec script or they think they've got the best, you know, feature film script that they in their hand and you know not realizing that what they have might get sold but might never see the light of day and or might get sold see the light of day but be completely different from what they intended it right. to be from the beginning so i'm, yeah. I'm so I mean, glad to have most somebody likely there. most likely it won't sell right and then and then the next phase is if it will sell most likely they're going to want you to change everything <laughs> right and then most likely after they want you to change everything it won't get made <laughs> yeah so, <laughs> I don't mean to be the, the voice of doom and gloom, but the, the percentages of things that actually get made is so small and right. so exactly. rare. And there's so many reasons, many of which have nothing to do with the quality of the script for why things get made or don't get made. And I can't tell you how many writers I've talked to in the business where it's like, this is not a meritocracy. It doesn't always mean that the cream rises. Sometimes it does. And if you work at it long enough and work hard enough and persevere, we can talk about that in terms of Zoe and my career, sometimes it breaks through. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, the vast majority of the things, I like, I can't tell you how many years that I would write these pilot scripts that would make it to the two-yard line, and I would sell them, and I would get paid for them, and I would have a nice living off of it. Right. But it would make it to the one- or two-yard line, and then the last second, it would be like, ah, uh, instead of yours, I think we're going to make this other one. Uh, like I know at least a half or a quarter of the shitty script I wrote that year was as good as the other shitty pilot. Right? <laughs> oh my I goodness! I love that though. I love the realism. Can I swear, can I swear on your podcast? Of course, oh, yeah, dude. man. We, we, we have the E. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, explicit welcome absolutely <laughs> so okay that all of that kind of leads me into then zoe's because and i'm very curious as to because i've got some questions about especially with what you just said about you know you've always kind of got big brother looking over and wanting to make some changes or adjustments here or there or whatever for anybody first of all who has not seen zoe's extraordinary playlist one what is wrong are you living under a rock right. you should definitely have already seen this show um it's absolutely brilliant just to kind of set it up it's a it, it's about a young woman who who's uh, a coder, a computer coder in San Francisco, and she's kind of like trying to make her way in this male-dominated world, and she's got a best friend that's kind of secretly in love with her, and she doesn't know, but now she does know, and she's kind of in love with another coworker. She's dealing with some family issues with her dad, who has a disease that's that's made him unable to communicate and speak and move, and she's worried that, and let me know, Austin, if I'm messing this up, she's kind of worried that maybe (laughs) she is also going to down the line have this problem so she goes to get checked out um i'm I'm giving away the whole pilot but uh when she gets checked out kind of like an earthquake or an event happens while the music is playing and everybody's freaking out and everything but she's okay she comes out of it and from that point she can now hear other people's thoughts or know other people's thoughts but the catch is it's all through musical numbers like these giant musical numbers so there you go now i know everybody's gonna rush to see it who hasn't seen it yet because it's brilliant (laughs) um and first Not of everyone all. loves musicals, and so <laughs> yeah, I don't know if everyone, but you know, people who have seen the show, a lot of them, one of the biggest compliments I've gotten so far is that 
it doesn't feel like a musical. And it people doesn't. who wouldn't normally be people who wouldn't normally be drawn to musical type movies or shows actually really like the show. They just need to watch it and see that it's not necessarily the thing that they think it might be. Absolutely. And I think that the reason for that is once they watch it is because yes, it does have musical numbers and it is a musical in a sense, if you will, but also it, it's this dramedy, you know, there's, there's heavy drama, but there's also comedic moments, but there are characters, you, you know, not just Zoe, but all of these people, and I think it's so brilliantly written that you immediately connect to. I mean, if you watch Zoe and there isn't a character in that show that you can connect to, something is wrong. Because I feel like there is somebody in that show that if you are watching it, you are that. You, you said, I've been there, I've been through that, I'm going through that. And I think that's why it connects so well when people watch it and people are jumping on board so quickly for this because you can relate. I mean, it's... It's one of those shows where you can just attach to a character and, and you're there in there, you know? Who do you attach to? Uh, oh, by far. I have gone through where I lost my father early as well. Um, so I just, my whole dynamic, and I'm sure you saw with the tweets and everything, the, the whole family dynamic between Zoe and, and her mom and dad, I'm just completely attached there by far. Thank you. Sorry to hear that about your father. Oh, no, thank you. And that's where I want to get into this because of what you said earlier in the in the interview about Big Brother coming in. Kind of, this, if if I'm not mistaken, is based on your life and your what you went through with your father. So when you come, you know, and you get picked up and you have a project that is so personal and based on, on reality and kind of what you've gone through, how is that approach when you do have somebody maybe from the network come in and say, eh, we want to tweak this or we want to tweak that? I mean, how do you even start that process when it's something so personal about yourself? It's a great question. First of all, I have certainly written projects over the years that have been personal to me. Mm -hmm. And I tend to write a main character a lot of times that feels like a Ben Stillery, Matthew Broderick-y, <laughs> um, kind of the, the, the Jewy, neurotic, Woody Allen-y, Austin character that I have written a lot of times sure. that feels like some sort of offshoot of me in some ways. Um, I think this project, though, far and away, is probably the most personal that I've ever put out there. Um, there might also be a connection to why this one got made and other ones haven't because of mm. how personal it is. Mm -hmm. uh, I can tell you that from the genesis of this idea, and I can talk all about where it came from and everything, uh, only one time in the process, and this came early on when I got Paul Feig attached as a producer on the show, he suggested one change that I ended up agreeing with that changed the whole fabric of the show. Other than that one change, I've never had a development experience or an experience working with a studio or a network where people have been more supportive or more on board from the very beginning. Oh, that's and fantastic. this is the only time I can think of truly in my career where there has been zero interference and anything that I've wanted to do, they've been on board with. And any notes or suggestions they've had have only been things that have helped it. So I've never once felt, and I'm telling you guys, in 20 years, I've never felt this in my career where... I have felt the the levels of support and encouragement where it's not about what can we change of what you're doing, but how can we help what you're doing. Oh, that, that I'm so happy to hear that because, and I think the reason maybe for that is, and I can't speak for the networks or for, or for the suits, but it because it is so unique, it's so original and so out there that the whole concept of it, I, I think it's just why would you want to change anything? Is the one thing that you mentioned that uh, the the fact that it was originally told from the father's point of view and then it switched to Zoe's? Is that the one change? No, or? I mean. The, so the, the way that this idea originated was 
my father passed away in 2011 from a rare neurological disease called progressive supernuclear palsy. Mm-hmm. And right before that, my father was a very dynamic, vibrant, athletic, outgoing, 67-year-old man. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he started falling backwards. He started slurring his words. We went to see some doctors. It was very hard to diagnose. There's a whole subset of these neurological progressive diseases where it's hard to figure out exactly what's going on right away. Right. But within a couple months, we were able to sort of pinpoint that he had what's called PSP. And from onset of diagnosis to him passing away was less than a year. Oh, wow. And... And during that time, I was becoming a father while losing my father. Mm. And I was really close to my dad and watching the kind of utter disintegration of a human being, but still knowing that his brain was working while his body was betraying him was just a very complicated, sad, traumatic, uh, emotional time in my family. And I knew after that time, at some point, because I've kind of always tried to be inspired by or write things that feel personal to me, that at some point I would want to write something about that time. And I would want to write something about becoming a dad while losing my dad. And I didn't know what was necessarily the right outlet for that. And for the first few years after it, I was too close to it and I wasn't ready to do it. Right. And what ended up happening is over the years, I've sold multiple musical projects. Uh, I sold a musical to ABC years ago with Adam Shankman, who directed Hairspray. Uh, I sold a musical to Showtime with John Legend. I sold another musical with Christina Aguilera to Freeform. Uh, I'd really been in, and I, I'd really been in this musical space, and also I did the live sound of music for NBC. Right. And I had a musical on Broadway a few years ago. So musicals over the last five, ten years have become more of my focus and an area where I've felt connected. And again, this goes back to my theater path. This goes back to Stage Door Manor, always loving musicals and using song, thinking that songs could be a great way to express characters' emotions and really being drawn into that. And so finally, when I was thinking about what could I write about my dad and I during that time, I had an idea one day, well, what if the father... Um, experience even when he's sitting there on the couch and he can't speak and he can't move, what if the way that he's experiencing the world is through musical numbers? Right. And when I thought of that idea, it kind of made me smile. And instead of feeling sad or depressing, it felt more joyful to me and happier. And I started running with that idea and I talked to my friend who was an executive at NBC who I had worked with before and we started talking about it. And she liked the idea but was worried that it maybe felt a little sad or a little small if it was all from the dad's point of view. So she said, is there just any way to open it up so it's not just from the dad's perspective? And then I started thinking about, well, what if there's a character, what if there's this guy who somehow gets this ability to hear people's inner thoughts as musical numbers. And one of the things that he gets from that is he's able to communicate with his father in a way that he can no longer communicate with him. So that was really the genesis of the whole thing. And as I was working on that, and I came up with a whole pitch with that, and I think he was a computer coder in San Francisco, and I think there were two women at work that he was battling over, and a lot of the dynamics were all in place. And I went and I pitched it to Paul Feig, and Paul Feig, a lot of his philosophy and where he focuses is on more women-centric and female-driven projects. Absolutely. And he, said to, and he said to me, I love it, and I'll do this with you, um, but what if the lead was a female instead of a man? And I thought about it for five seconds, <laughs> and it, it, instantly I was like, you know what? It actually doesn't change any of the fabric of the things that I like about the show, and 
in many ways, it makes things deeper. So, for instance, like when I started thinking about computer programmers in San Francisco and learning about women in that world, there's so few women in that world, and there's lots of reasons for that that have to do with early age, not women not learning or being educated that science and math have value and STEM and all that kind of stuff. Right. And it, I actually started realizing, like, you know, it actually it, it puts more. There's more stakes in the show. There's more that she has to work against if it is a woman. And I like the idea of a woman who sees the world in very binary terms, very black and white, hides behind her computer, isn't good at dealing with other people, getting this ability, and the ability forces her out of her comfort zone in order to deal with other people. And that was the change. That was the one change I had. Oh, fantastic. and then and that was before we even went to the network. And the second we and from the time we went to the network on, it's all been everyone's been on the same page. And again, none of it was anybody uh, twisting my arm. It was simply one suggestion from Paul Feig that I liked and I ran with, and the rest is, uh, here we are. Absolutely brilliant. Okay, well, I've got to say, phenomenal casting. I mean, the the cast on this show is absolutely unbelievable. Um, first of all, I can't say this enough. Thank you, thank you, thank you for bringing Lauren Graham back to television. Uh, <laughs> um, but Jane Levy, I just it could not have been a better choice for Zoe because the the expressions that come across her face when she's not saying a word and what she's able to convey are just absolutely brilliant. And then uh, Skylar Aston, I mean Peter Gallagher, Mary. Steenberg, and it's just insane the people that you got involved with this. How did that process come about? Because I mean, th- th- these are just phenomenal names. Was it was it a difficult casting process, or did you know right away who you wanted, or how did that go down? Yeah, I mean, so right away with Jane and Mary and Peter and Skyler, they were the first choices for the roles, and they read the script, and I met with each one of them, and after that first meeting, they all said yes. Wow. Um, and Lauren came into it later. We actually had cast somebody as the boss initially, and we ended up recasting after the pilot, and Lauren was a godsend and perfect for the role and has been great for us. And then the other people, our casting director, Robert Ulrich, is um, cast Glee. And so we had everybody who came in for the parts of Simon and Moe, and Leif and Tobin, um, trying to think if there's anyone else, David, the brother, um, they, everybody would come in and they would sing two songs at their audition. So for weeks, people are just coming into the room and singing for us, <laughs> almost like American Idol or something. Yeah. And then they would read the scenes. And from the second that John Clarence Stort came in for Simon, he had a history with Jane. She actually recommended him because they had worked on What If together. Okay. Um, he made us cry in his audition. He oh, was wow. so emotionally raw and vulnerable and awesome that it was almost a no-brainer with him. And same thing when Alex Newell came in. Alex was on Glee, so Robert brought him in. Initially, that part was written for a woman. Mm-hmm. Alex is a male who was female representing. Right. And we saw 300 women for that part. And Alex came in and was just so funny and unique and different. And um, also, I thought, lent, it, lent to like an interesting other kind of dimension in San Francisco. Uh, and I just thought, like, who better to be... Zoe's, you know, the character of Mo was always meant to be, Zoe's a closed off person. Mm-hmm. Mo is very open. Mo is very open to the world, open to people, open to new experiences. And Mo is also kind of a musical savant. And I just love this interesting dynamic that I thought would be there between uh, Jane and Alex. And Alex just 
first of all, his voice, he's like Whitney Houston. He is, <laughs> he's touched by God. He's next level talent. I've right. never seen anything like it before. And I just thought he was so winning and the two of them together were so winning that it was just a no brainer. Oh yeah. I mean, absolutely. Their dynamic is phenomenal from the get go. I mean, almost from the start of the pilot episode. I mean, it, it, it's immediate. Uh, it just, it's unbelievable what you've been. And so I want to jump into this because the playlist, <laughs> pardon the pun, but the playlist for the first couple of episodes has just been absolutely insane awesome a uh, huge fan of the music and, and it keeps up like that all season oh that's not. good that is really good yes. to hear so what my question is because i mean music clearance can be a nightmare for anybody who's not familiar with the process it, it is not fun it is not easy and I, I know that there's a couple of different ways that you can approach this right because i know the rules are a little bit different if you're actually using their the actual artist's music or if you're using the music but performing it yourself. It's, it's a different set of rules, right? Because I, I would have to imagine that the music budget on this show is insane. You still have to go through all similar sorts of clearances to get the rights to the songs. Right. There are two different price points, and there's two different ways that there's like mechanical rights and Lights, I'm, I'm, I get the words wrong, but there's different kinds of rights. So one right is like a performance right, which means you're using the actual artist. And then there's another right, which has to do with who wrote the song, who owns the song, okay. to get their permission to do your own version of their songs. So we do have a sizable music budget, but it might not be as big as you think because we're not getting the performance rights as well. Interesting, because I was just like, when you open up that giant Beatles like performance, I was like, oh, wow, what did that cost to make? I mean, you know. Yeah, so- <laughs> and, you know it's, and you know, it's funny because when we did the pilot, people were like, you know, I don't, there's a lot of songs in here, Austin. I don't know if we're going to get all the songs. And I was like, honestly, guys, the two songs that are most important to me in the pilot are Help and True Colors. And I wanted Help because... This is the first time we're seeing a big number on the show. Mm-hmm. I wanted a collective feeling that everyone is feeling that we all need something. What is an idea that encapsulates that? Well, I think we all need help in some way, and Zoe's job in the show is going to be to help people. And so the, the fact, so on day one, I, I said, look, if we can get true colors and we can get help, we can try to figure out other songs for everything else. Right. Those are my goals. And somehow on day one, we got help and true colors. And then we got every other song that I had scripted in the pilot. And truly, to this day, we have not had anybody say no. No, there were yeah, there were five times throughout the season where I had to write personal letters to the artists or musicians themselves, asking for their approval to use their song. Uh, and we were able to get songs cleared that our music supervisor Jen Ross, who did who did Empire and Smash and some other big shows, mm. so she's been in this world a lot. She was like, "Good luck," but this one, just so you know, like it's almost impossible to get a Beastie Boys song. Beastie Boys <laughs> almost <laughs> always say no. And I wrote a letter to the Beastie Boys, and they said yes. That is crazy. <laughs> that is so insane. Definitely. And and one of the rules that I had for the show, and I had a lot of rules. One of the rules was that at least in season one, I wanted to make sure that every song that we use is a known song. And the conceit of the show allows you to use songs any genre, any time period, it, which was part of the built into the conceit of it. But I wanted to make sure that within that, you know, that, it, and when I say known songs, like my musical knowledge is probably not as vast as Logan's. I have like a, a medium knowledge of music, but I don't have a ex- crazy extensive small bands, indie stuff. I don't, it's not 
quite not that's not quite my thing, but certainly popular music and top forty and hits and all that kind of stuff. So it was very important to me that every song we used to show was a song that I knew because I felt like that is the best way to bring in a large audience and make it feel universal when it's songs that everyone knows. Okay, that first of all, awesome because, like I said, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people comment on the music about uh, on the show. Um, and then I want to compliment you first of all because at the top of the interview I said that I was attached to the the, the family dynamic of the show. I think those the the, the most powerful scenes for me are are when you see them that scene on the yacht with the with the boating was just absolutely incredible i mean the just the moment where the the hand comes up and they touch hands dude i, I can't even express to you like that literally brought a tear to my eye it, it was that good so um i mean talk to me about that a little bit with how does your family like how are they dealing with watching it is it is is it a is it a positive experience for them or do, do you get a phone call every now and then going that was a little rough to watch or how's that yeah definitely for my mom I think that uh, my mom has always been very supportive of my career and always supportive of me uh, writing personal stuff and stuff that means something to me. I think that in so many ways, Peter is really channeling not only the disease, but he looks a lot like how my dad looked during that time. And it was interesting because being on set, there would be times where I could compartmentalize it and just say, this is my job, this is the scene I'm working on. And then every once in a while, he would give a look or do something that would bring me so vividly back to a moment in my own life. And I'd get sad or choked up or start to cry, and I'd leave set for a few minutes and kind of gain my bearings and come back. Um, But I have been able to look at it somewhat from a distance and realize, like, this is, I'm doing this for the show. Uh, but my mom, you know, I think it's one thing to sort of in the abstract know that I'm doing it. It's another thing to see every single episode of the show. We do something that happened in my house during that time. Wow. And I think for her, it's definitely uh, bringing back memories and an emotional experience and sometimes feels vulnerable. And I think she's surprised sometimes that I'm going there. I don't okay. like I didn't tell her everything that I was doing, so she doesn't know all of it. <laughs> um, and I think she's just... Um, you know, on the one hand, she's proud and she loves the show. And on the other hand, I think it's challenging for her. I think my sister um, has a little bit more of emotional distance from it. So she's able to be a little bit more objective about it. Mm-hmm. But certainly for my and my, my wife and my brother-in-law, we were all around. We were all experiencing it during the time. So I think that it brings back different memories and emotions for all of us. Okay. And the next question I have, because, and I really want to kind of talk about this because like I said, our, our, our listeners and our, and our followers are, are of this, this generation and of this target group that you're trying to reach. I thought the the marketing strategy here, because I couldn't tell you, like I was wondering at first, like, okay, here's the pilot. Now it's disappeared. What the hell is going on? Um, you know, so let's talk about that a little bit. It was like the, the pilot aired and then there was this like huge effort to like push it onto the to online sites and social media and all these different aspects of where you could watch the pilot, you know, to, to target a certain I, I, young females, right? 18 to 34, the target age and the target range that you're looking for. And talk about that a little bit. What was it like when, did you know about this or did the network kind of come to you and say, hey, we've got this idea about how we want to do this to kind of lure people to TV. What what was that like? (laughs) Um, Well, the network... First of all, they do believe that a big portion of the audience is 18 to 34 year old women. Sure. And I think that the show is also universal because I do, I've gotten a lot of anecdotal stuff from people who are younger, people who are much older. I think this show does live beyond that. Oh, absolutely. I just think that's definitely a big target group for them. 
that target group isn't watching TV in the same way anymore. Exactly. And no, you know, I don't know too many 18 to 34 year olds who maybe even have a cable uh, subscription anymore. Who even, who even watch TV. Like I, I do, my wife and I, we don't watch TV live anymore. We DVR something or we watch it on Netflix or Hulu or something like that. Times have so shifted and changed with how people watch television. And I think that NBC from the get go knew that this wasn't a simple-to-market show because it's not just another legal show or cop show or comedy. It mm-hmm. kind of uh, goes across many different genres. And so their idea, what, which they've never done before, was how do we get this out to the most people possible? How do we build work? They're really, they've been, again, like I said, they've been so supportive. They really love the show. Um, they're like, how do we get the most eyeballs to see this, and how do we start to build word of mouth for it? And their philosophy about that was, let's preview the show in January. They had a big promotional platform right after the Golden Globe uh, yeah. during the Golden Globes to air a lot of ads for it. Let's put it out there on television so that we can then put it online for five or six weeks. And they did. They they blanketed the internet with the show so that it could become accessible to anybody. And we got over forty million views just yeah. on YouTube. Yeah, that's not counting all the other sites that it was on. Um, And so I think it was a way to bring eyeballs and awareness to the show and to build word of mouth from people who don't, who aren't, aren't watching TV in the traditional ways that people used to watch television. I think all networks now, all, all you know, not cable and streaming, but the ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, they're trying to figure out ways to bring viewers back. And they're way more interested in the live plus three day number, live plus seven, live plus 30, yep. live plus streaming. They're not looking at it in the same way anymore of the overnights because a hit show now for them it's like a point seven rating, and a less hit show gets a point five rating. We're not; these, it's so different from the from years past. And I think that NBC is being st- smart and strategic about let's just get as many eyeballs on it as possible. And that was their philosophy, and they'd never really done it before, and it broke all sorts of uh, digital records for them, which was really exciting. So I, even though it sounded unconventional to me, I was also encouraged by it because they put so much uh, marketing muscle behind it and really believe in the show, and the intention is just how do we get as many people to watch it as possible? Absolutely, and and it worked, clearly. I mean, I, mean, yeah. I, I know the ratings were, were really solid for episode two, and, and the word of mouth is just, I, I tell you, I hear people talk about it all the time. So I know the word of mouth is getting out there and and I know that people are enjoying it. So uh, congratulations, man. Thank you. And they they put episode two on YouTube again. I don't know if I don't know how much they're going to be doing this past this, but already in like two or three days, we're up to six or seven million views on YouTube already. So it's interesting. Like it's just times are changing with television and the way people are viewing stuff is different. And the networks are starting to understand that they have to be more creative about the ways in which they're getting eyeballs on their stuff. Well, okay. So let's talk about social media then uh, because you guys do the live tweeting you know so many shows we've seen now have gone to the live tweeting during the episodes um, and you guys did a brilliant job last week with that that was my first time ever doing that I got on Twitter for the first time a week and a half ago so we'll talk about that then a little bit. What, what, what's your thought on the whole social media process in the entertainment game? Like, are you a fan of it? Or, are, are you okay with it? Or do you think it can be one of those double-edged swords where it can be a really good thing, but it can also kind of be a bad thing? What, what do you think about it? Well, I think I spent a lot of years just ignoring it <laughs> and, and pretending like this wasn't the new way of doing stuff. Uh, and then you start to realize, like, with Instagram, with Twitter, with Facebook, with all of this stuff, this is the way that things build awareness now. This is the way that you get a more um, active and motivated fan base. So 
I think, I guess the only way that it's negative is in some of the toxicity of things that happen on social media. And if people don't like something or can turn on something, uh, you know, it can certainly hurt emotionally. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but I would say that 95% of the feedback that I've read on social media on Zoe's has been so positive and so enthusiastic that it's, it's enabled me to not dwell on the 4% that say <laughs> negative things. Well, that's um, a good thing. And, and so uh, I think it's just, I, I think it's just part of the new order. It's the new world. And I think that, you know, you see this with actors too, like their value goes up uh, the more followers they have. And, you know, I, so I just think that it's now part of the whole publicity, marketing, awareness. I, and the other part of it, too, I think is authenticity. Mm -hmm. And I think that, the, you know, one of the things I've strived to do with Zoe is not only make it as authentic to my experience with my father, but really learn who these actors are and try to give them stuff that feels very authentic to them. And I think part of what people like about social media is it does feel like it's a more authentic representation of who these people are. I know there's the whole side of it that feels like you, what's your Instagram self versus your real self or how do you present yourself on social media. But I do think it's a way to be closer to celebrities or, or performers or writers than people ever have before. And so my philosophy now that I'm starting to lean into it is to just try to be honest and authentic. And I think that's what, especially people who are on sites like that, I think that's what they respond to. And I think they sniff it out and smell it when it feels inauthentic. Absolutely. And I mean, come on, it's got to feel good, right? You're a fan, you, you know, you like a particular actor, you like a particular show, they're live tweeting, you're following along, you're enjoying the show, and you get a response from one of those people. It, it, it's bound to make them feel good. It's bound to make them, like you said, feel like that was an authentic response to something that they took the time to tweet. And it's going to draw you to want to do it more, to watch the show more, to, to follow along with the people more. I, I, I do think think it's a good idea and I love the fact that you bring up authentic because I do believe that that's true and I think it does make people feel good that they are drawn to a certain thing and they can get a response from somebody that's involved with that certain project I think that's a good thing absolutely I mean I think the only danger for me is I get a little addicted to these things and so now every two <laughs> seconds I'm checking Twitter it was like this is probably a reason why I wasn't on it for the first 10 years it was so out there whatever is because now literally I'm like obsessed with looking at Twitter and Facebook and all of those things and I will say the other amazing thing that's come of this so far is at least a hundred people have reached out to me now on social media who have family members who have the disease or have passed away from mm. the same disease as my dad. And that's been uh, very emotional and touching to me and also surprising because it's a very rare disease. So every day I'm getting all these this amazing feedback from people who have lived with PSP or PSP-related diseases. And so it does feel like it's building awareness. It is landing in other ways besides just entertainment. And that was something that I don't think I ever anticipated while doing it. Oh, that's, that's so good to hear. I mean, Logan and I talk about that all the time about, like, you know, if you can use art and you can help one person. If you, if what you do touches one person, then you've done your job. That you know, and I, I feel like to hear that, to hear you say that is is a wonderful thing because I think that's something that you know a lot of people view it. Yeah, movies are great, television shows are great, or anything, but it's art and your expression and you're putting yourself out there. And if you can connect with somebody and help somebody that might be going through something that you've gone through, I, I think there's no better way to help the world than through art. Yeah, and show people that you're just not alone in a situation, especially like you said, people reaching out to you with the same disease or the family members of the same disease. It, I bet it shows that you are not alone in the situation. Other people are going uh, in the same situations that you were going through. Yeah, I mean, I remember when my dad was going through it, I, it was so isolating and it was so 
there was this one website, curepsp.org, that I would go to and kind of read these testimonials, but uh-huh. I didn't feel any connection to other people going through it, and you feel very alone during it. And so the fact that there's forums for this stuff now and that people are reaching out, I mean, it's definitely emotional. I cry reading some of these uh, these messages that people send me, but I also feel like um, there's good in there too, I guess. Yeah. Absolutely. absolutely, Definitely. And I mean, I bet it helps them out probably even more knowing that someone of your caliber with your success in the entertainment business, that even you, you're also a normal person going through these things. So it helps them out as well. Well said. Going back to like the up and comers for writing and everything, what advice would you say that you would give to up and coming writers, producers, anybody behind the scenes that might have to deal with Big Brother in the entertainment industry? What advice would you uh, give to them and what pitfalls would you say to try to avoid? Well, the first thing I would say is to keep going, to persevere, to keep writing. Um, this is sort of more writer advice, but, you know, to not give up. To I, I've met a lot of people over the years who say they're a writer, and you're like, well, what, what, what have you written? And they're like, well, yeah, I'm kind of starting thinking about an idea. I might be It's like, no, either, like, if you're a writer, write. Exactly. Write a script, write a play, write a short story. Uh, write a spec episode of something on television, but actually put in the work. And you could spend so much time talking about the work rather than actually doing the work. And I don't think that's actually really writing. And I think you learn. I mean, I, I wrote this in a Facebook post the other day, but it's like the whole Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours thing. Mm-hmm. I've done, I've done 10,000 hours plus 10,000 hours plus 10,000 hours <laughs> plus 10,000 hours. Like, it, part of it is really about putting in the work. And I don't think you're really being an artist if you're just talking about being an artist. I think you have to actually put the work in. Talk about, um, well, this is just advice for me, honestly. When it comes to relevance for like a plot point or like just an overall idea of a concept, do you try to predict the future or do you try to like make something relevant right now? I never think of it that way. Mm -hmm. When I did the Jake in Progress, you know, that sort of 24 concept idea, I think, was ahead of its time. Yeah. And I think there were several shows over the years after that that tried to do a version of, like, a real-time TV show. Mm-hmm. So I think I was too ahead of the curve at that point. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think whenever you try to do something that you think is going to sell or you think is the thing that people are going to want, I think that that is potentially a pitfall that will become something that makes it feel familiar or like you're trying to be something, it goes back to the authenticness. Mm-hmm. And I think what people respond to, especially now in Hollywood and the way that the world is changing, I think that the most you you can be, and the most authentic you can be to your voice and the things you're interested in, I think that is what people are going to respond to, rather than trying to think of, well, what's the next best big idea on a spaceship with the two people shooting each other. I don't right. know. Like you, you, I think that authenticity matters. Right. That's why I go back to, and again, it's like I look at the projects that I've had made over the years versus the things that sold versus the things that got to the one yard line or whatever it is. I think you just got to write the thing that you care about. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're worried too much about what are the people going to want or what's, what, how am I going to anticipate the next curve, I, I don't think that's winning. Mm-hmm. I like that. I Definitely. do too. I do too. Because, I mean, it's impossible almost to predict what will and will not hit. And I, I think that also goes back to authenticity. If you're not writing what's authentic to you and you're just trying to put something out there that you think is going to hit or not hit, right. I mean, that's, that's not a way to guarantee success. It, yeah, and I, I mean... Look, there's lots of examples of this. Like, top of my head, you'd look at Quentin Tarantino, 
like Quentin Tarantino made his mark because no one was doing what Quentin Tarantino was doing. To this day, whenever you see a movie that feels like a Quentin Tarantino ripoff, you know it's a Tarantino ripoff. Right. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and, and yet, when you see a Tarantino movie, there's something about it that feels him. Mm-hmm. So I think, and I don't know why I'm using him as an example, but like he is somebody that's very definitively who he is. Right. And I think when you think of the people, at least when I think of the people that I admire, the people that I look up to over the years, they do have a version of their own voice and their own thing. And I think those are the things that cut through the clutter. And I do think there have been a lot of things over the years that I have sold that it feels good to sell it and it feels good to make money off of that, but that don't get made. And I think it's because they, they fall somewhere in that lane of feeling safe or familiar. Right. Or like it just doesn't elevate above the rest because it wasn't something uniquely me. And I think the fact that Zoe's came from such a personal place mm-hmm. that it ties into everything I love with musicals and romantic comedy and emotion and family and all that stuff, I do think there's some reason why this one was able to cut through the clutter in a way that other ones haven't. And I think it's because it checks a lot of boxes that feel very specific to me. And I think that when you find the thing that feels uniquely you, that's the thing that makes you special. Mm-hmm. And so I would encourage younger writers to always try to be thinking about how to cultivating their own voice, trying to think about writing what matters to them. And I think it's that passion and that stuff that stands out more than the stuff that feels derivative or the thing that you think people want. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another piece of advice I would give is that so many times over the years, I've, I've allowed, I've, I've been open to reading other people's stuff. And I've said, if you want me to read something of yours, I'm happy to read it. My one caveat to you is you can't get defensive with me when I give you my thoughts. Exactly. And, I'd have a lot of young writers who I would read, and because I, after I won that Young Playwrights Festival, I became a mentor and a director for that Young Playwrights Festival for a long time. So from that, but also just from people I would meet along the way who said they wanted to be writers, I'd read their stuff. And I, I've been in a lot of writers' rooms, and I've done this a long time now. And I, I think I have an, a certain degree of aptitude of giving notes and thoughts on projects. And I, I know I'm only one person, but I'm trying to be objective. I don't have any agenda. And I can't tell you how many young writers I would read their stuff, and they'd get so defensive with me when I would give them their my thoughts and their notes. And I'm like, you know what? That doesn't um, engender goodwill. It doesn't make me want to work with you. And it's right. not going to make other people want to work with you. So I think as much as you want to be protective of your material, you do also have to be open and you have to be open to the notes and you have to be open to hearing where maybe things aren't working. And certainly if you get five people to read something of yours and maybe they all have a different note, but the note is all stemming around the middle of act two mm-hmm. or the note is all stemming around the female lead or something. You, it, there's something that's worth listening to there. And so I think that you just have to be open to criticism. You have to learn how to take that in and develop a thick skin in the process. And it's a cliche, but so much of writing is rewriting. And I do think that things get better the more that you work on them and the more that you hone them. And it doesn't mean that the first words out of... I used to think when I started writing these plays when I was 15 or 16 years old that the first words that I wrote down was gold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now I've learned that my whole process is all about rewriting and figuring out and outlining and right. really taking your time. And so those are just a few pieces of advice I would have. I, I can't think of any better way to end advice than that. Yeah, I seriously. mean, just be real, be you, be who you are and, and don't have an ego when, some, <laughs> when exactly. somebody is trying to help, you know, let them help. Like, this is a business. Exactly. Exactly. Oh man. Listen, thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking. It's just been outstanding, man. Um, thank you. I'm glad I could, uh, 
offer some words of pearls of wisdom after all my hard-earned years of rejection. <laughs> <laughs> well, rejection's part of it, right? Exactly. I mean, come on, man. Well, this is the thing. I mean, you ask any actor, any writer, any director, other than the top three, you know, the anomaly two people that have had all this, that have only ridden the wave of success the entire way through, mm-hmm. it's always ups and downs. It's always peaks and valleys. And it's always about how do we... I mean, we didn't even talk about any of this stuff, but, you know, how do you, how do you uh, define yourself and how much are you defined by your work and how much of your self-worth is rooted in the work and all of that because it, you're, the entertainment business is a business of highs and lows and there is lots of rejection even for the most successful people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, well, I, you know, I'm glad you brought that up, though, because you do have to be able to ride the lows as well as the highs, like you said. And I think, I mean, all, all kidding aside from the joking that we were doing just a, a few minutes ago, but I, I mean, really, you have to know when to step back. Like, your whole existence can't rely on what you do or don't do in this job or in this industry. There has to be more than that, right? Correct. So if we were going to have a much longer conversation about it, I would talk about balance. <laughs> I would talk about... Uh, I would talk about not defining yourself by your work. I would talk about uh, grass is greener and FOMO and all the disadvantages of that. I would talk about compare and despair, all of those negative things that fundamentally don't help you or help the work. There you go. Well, that sounds like a second appearance on the show for us. (laughs) Exactly. We're going to have to have you back just to talk about that. Whenever you guys want me. Oh, definitely. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Let's definitely make sure, though, everybody knows where to follow you because you, I'm guessing. We'll be live tweeting again on Sunday. Uh, I will live tweet every week, and also I only have like 300 followers right now, so I really need to up my game. Oh, there you go. So, all right, tell everybody where they can follow you. Where can they find you on uh, Instagram? I believe it's at Austin. I believe it's at Austin Winsberg. Okay. W i n s b e r g. The show is Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. It's every Sunday at nine on NBC, and you can also watch episodes on NBC.com and on Hulu. Right now, the entire second episode is up on YouTube as well. I think there's probably some other sites that it is on right now. Um, and uh, yeah, so please, please watch and uh, join me on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> which I've never said before. I've never used those words before. Right. That was a great pitch. That was exactly. a great pitch for Twitter, right there. <laughs> First on the inside the crazy ant farm. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, man. Thanks so much for taking the time. Like. I said to talk to us today and it, it was a lot of fun we had a lot of fun and uh just continued success for zoe's i think it's going to be a huge hit for a lot of years uh i can't wait to see where it goes and and, and how the storyline plays out man and just we could not be more happy for you thank you so much and thank you guys for the support i really appreciate it absolutely man have a great rest of the week and like i said open invite you, dude anytime you, you want to come back on more than welcome you got it i'll take you up on it <laughs> all right man take care now right. see ya thanks guys bye-bye man Talk about somebody real right there. I mean, seriously, what what I what I really like is is that the whole theme throughout it seemed like the interview was don't have an ego, mm-hmm. uh, be able to take criticism. I guess work towards your passion and be passionate about what you work towards, right. but also know how to separate it. And and I just think that all plays into the success of Zoe's. Yeah, because if you watch Zoe, almost everything he talked about in today's interview plays out on that show. Yeah, exactly like that. So exactly. Exactly. And write what you know. Definitely write what you know. Not, don't try to predict what's going to be popular and everything. Because that's something I've heard in the past. Like right. People try to project what's going to be popular like in the next year or two. And that's not what it's about. you got to write what you know and what you feel close to the heart so that you feel that you can keep doing it week in and week out. So I Abs- love that. Absolutely. Because even if you kind of know what you, is going to click a year from now, if you're not authentic about what you're writing, it's not going to click a year exactly. from now. So it could 
it could be the the subject matter could be spot on, but if you're not writing what's authentic to you, it's going to fail. Agreed. So, I mean, yeah, great advice, man. And I just, I really like people who come on here and are real about their shit. Man. Yeah, agreed. So. Agreed. Thank you again, Austin Winsberg, for coming on the show. All right, now it is time for our top five segment. Oh, man, you guys know that we are huge moviegoers, huge film buffs, huge into the television, huge. I mean, obviously, this is our podcast, guys, huge in the entertainment industry. So our top five this week is top five upcoming films that you are looking forward to seeing. Yes. Yeah. And I have I have a lot. I, it was hard to fit five. Yeah. I mean, come on now. Yeah. But, but you know. Yeah, I mean, I just went through our handy-dandy IMDb Pro app <laughs> and uh, was looking at pro uh, post-production stuff. So, I mean, it. I was looking for a lot of stuff that is further down the line, and you got stuff that's kind of about to come out. Yeah, it's stuff that's coming out over the next several weeks. Yeah. So, um, so this will be fun, though, to bounce back and forth a little bit. My number five is No Time to Die, yeah. the, the the latest James Bond movie, which, right. by the way, will also be the longest James Bond movie. Right. Apparently, two hours and 32 minutes, I think they 43. said. 43. 43 minutes. Yeah. Two hours, 43 minutes. So I'm excited about this one. Every time I see the trailer, that motorcycle goes up over the wall, yeah. and like I just get pumped. Yeah. So uh, definitely looking forward to that one, No Time to Die. Oh, yeah. My number five is Ghostbusters Afterlife. Mm, this yes. one looks way darker than the original original two and let's not even talk about the other comedy but um this one looks way darker and i'm a huge paul rudd fan and a huge uh finn wolfland fan so their interaction is going to be just i'm so intrigued so. yes it's gonna kick ass yeah i mean and we should say all of the originals are making cameos yeah so you know well, well i'm excited about that one too mulan number yeah. four for me mulan I'm so excited about this live action. I love the Asian culture. Anybody who knows me knows it. Huge fan of Last Samurai, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm pumped about this. I'm looking forward to it. I hope this whole thing with the coronavirus and all the shit in Asia and all this controversy right, doesn't, affect it. doesn't affect it because apparently it was pretty fucking expensive, $200 million. So, um, But I'm pumped for it, man. I think it's going to be pretty good, even if it doesn't have Mishu. Right. What the fuck? I know. But, you know. Yeah, it is what it is. Uh, Number four for me, Scoob. Scooby Doo coming back to the big screen. (laughs) I'm super excited. Computer animation man making huge waves in the entertainment industry. And yet, like I said, I'm just super excited to see him come back. It looks really fun, literally family friendly. So, yeah, and we finally see how uh, Shaggy and Scoob met. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And the whole gang, actually. The whole gang, yeah. yeah. And little known fact, guys, that that you learn in this movie, Scooby Snacks were not named after Scooby-Doo. Right. Scooby-Doo was named after the Scooby Snacks. Exactly. What the fuck? Yeah, no one knew. I had that wrong the whole time. Yeah. The whole fucking time. There you go. (laughs) Number three, Drunk Ben Affleck. That is the one I am looking forward to. It comes out in a couple of weeks. The Way Back. This yes. is where he goes back. He's you know trying to recover from being an alcoholic who's lost his way, lost his family. Comes back to coach his old high school football. I mean uh, basketball team. Um, super pumped about this man. Yeah. I really think this is going to be a good one, and I wish it had come out later in the year because I think it could have been potential Oscar. Uh, material for Ben, but so early in the year, I doubt it. Yeah. But, um, I th- I'm excited for it, man. I'm pretty pumped. Yeah, and I mean, it's my number three as well. I'm super excited. Everybody likes the comeback story, especially when it kind of like parallels with his real life. Yeah. So I'm, and I love, I'm a huge basketball fan, huge motivational film fan. I mean, it kind of um, reminds me a little bit, not, I mean, 
motivational wise of remembering the Titans. Yeah, just, or or Hoosiers. Yeah, yeah. It's like if remember the Titans met Hoosiers. Exactly. It's, there it's you the go. way back. It's <laughs> the way back. Yeah, but looks so freaking good. I'm really pumped to see that one. Definite, definite. Uh, let's see. I have got for number two a quiet place. A Quiet Place 2. 2. That is my that is my second. I'm super stoked about this, man. Krasinski yeah. is just killing it. He somehow figured out a way to write himself back into back the into script, it. even though he was dead. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? Exactly. But it's going to be awesome. I love these two together. I think this is going to be a huge hit. And by the way, the son, that, that kid is killing it. Ford versus Ferrari and like all these things that he's been in lately, he is just killing it. Um, Super pumped. I hope it's a massive, huge success because then I want them to move forward and become the Fantastic Four. <laughs> so really pulling for that one, I man. really am. And if he has another huge hit with his directing and, and writing, I, it only seems like Kevin Feige should hire him. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> just say it. Just say it. Uh, number two for me is The Lovebirds. This one looks so freaking funny. Uh, you know about the couple who's basically on a date and somebody just jumps in the car and yeah. like acts like he's a cop or whatever. Yeah. Fuck Take him. the bacon grease. Is Ray Ray and uh, Camille Namaji or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, bad with names, guys. But they are just freaking phenomenal. And an interracial couple who we need to see more of on the big screen. We talk about that all the time. I mean, everybody is always in their own like classifications, in their own little box. But True. interracial couples don't really get shown a lot. So I'm really excited to see that on the big screen. And the movie looks fucking hilarious. It does. It, it, that Just the scene with the horse and the bacon grease yeah. is fucking... I die. <laughs> Every time take I say bacon, take grease. bacon grease, <laughs> um, it's gonna be really good. Good yeah. choice, good choice. Number one for me is is it's it's right around the corner, and I'm so fucking pumped. Black Widow. Yeah. Yes, the official kickoff of the next phase of the MCU, uh, and yet we're going backwards because it's a it's a prequel, if you will, <laughs> you know, that takes place right after Civil War. So figure that out. It's the first movie in the next phase, but it's a prequel to the old phase. Hmm. But um, hmm. I'm pumped about this, though. I mean, David Harbour as the Red Guardian and, and you know, Scarlett Johansson and, and, and Pugh, Florence Pugh. I think this thing is going to kick ass. And by the way, I know it's been taking a lot of heat because of some of the, the costume. But I don't think we've seen the full costume yet, so people need to back the fuck off. Taskmaster is a great fucking villain. Yeah. I mean, a great villain. If you're not a comic geek, go pick up a comic and learn about Taskmaster and you'll start to get excited. I think this movie's going to kick ass. Dude. Yeah. And my number one is Space Jam 2, because mm. I'm super excited to see what LeBron James will do do with this. And looking up on our handy-dandy IMDb Pro app, uh, Don Cheadle is also yeah. as top build in this one. So I'm just super interested to see what they're going to do with this. Yes, it's going to be fantastic. I mean, I loved the first one. I can only imagine that this one is going to be on par or better. Agreed. Um, it's going to be epic. It's going to be absolutely epic. Definitely. Good list, man. I know. So much good stuff coming out. It's really, it's hard to pick just five, but you know, it is what it is. It is. Uh, now it is time for the box office recap. Oh man. Number one was Sonic the Hedgehog with 29.2 million. Came under my predictions. Uh, I predicted 30 to 35. I went and saw this one. Very family friendly film. I was hoping for a little bit more like 
funny, I don't know, funny adult humor, but I mean, it is what it is. Family fun film. It was good. I'm not going to lie. Um, number two was The Call of the Wind. Uh, these two were fighting neck and neck until literally the last second for who was going to be number one, but Call of the Wind came in with $24.8 million, and I only predicted that one to get 10 to 15 so it did way better than my predictions. Yeah. So go... Harrison Ford, hopefully you don't kill young directors on Indiana Jones 5. <laughs> um, number three was Harley Quinn, uh, Birds of Prey with 6.8 million. I predicted 5 to 10. Number four was Bad Boys for Life, who I completely thought was out of the top five, but they just bounced right back in. Yep. Um, with 5.8 million. I got that one wrong, uh, but I'm honestly surprised that Bloomhouse's Fantasy Island was kind of like kicked to the curb. So. I am. It is what it is. He's been missing a lot lately, yeah. bro. I mean, I, 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 he was dominating for so long, but his last few have just not done well. Yeah. That's two bad ones for Lucy Hale, too. Yeah. Because remember, Truth or Dare didn't do well either. Exactly. So uh, that sucks for yeah. her because we're big fans of Lucy. But um, Yeah, but she's got Katty Keen going on right now she on does. TV. So she's probably going to focus more on that. Yeah, I think I think she's going to be okay. Um, And I'm exci- I think Birds of Prey, we talked about this. I think Birds of Prey worked. The yeah. name change is keeping it in the top five. Mm-hmm. So there you go. I, I mean, I agree. we'll see how much longer it can hang on. Right. And uh, number five was that Brum's The Boy 2. Nobody yeah. knows. Nope. about the boy one no nope. but the boy two is out right now so go see it if you're wanting to uh new movies that are coming out this week are the invisible man which apparently a lot of people are at least a lot of producers and people that are attached to the film like on the back half of it are a little upset that the trailer kind of gives a lot away yeah apparently the entire movie except yeah. for one scene yeah so <laughs> you know you've already seen the film guys so yeah. that's it you know that's gonna be pretty tough yeah exactly exactly so if you want to go see that I if mean, you, you saw know. the trailer you saw the film yeah, yeah exactly um but movies you can still go see are holly quinn birds of prey 1917 bad boys for life just mercy Fantasy Island, The Photograph, Sonic the Hedgehog, Call of the Wind, Brahms, The Boy 2, and Impractical Joker's movie is now out too, which is actually doing better. And that's in my top five this week. I'm not going to lie. I think it's going to come in right at number five. But number one, I think it's going to be The Invisible Man with around 30 to 35. Number two, I think it's going to be Sonic the Hedgehog with around 15 to 20. Num or actually no, I flipped it. Uh, number two, I think it's going to be the Call of the Wind with fifteen to twenty since they were battling it out last week. Number oh. three, I think it's going to be Sonic the Hedgehog with fifteen to twenty, but it's going to be another close race, like I think. Um, number four, I think it's going to be Bad Boys for Life because that's the one that just keeps on kicking. It with does. Man. Three to five, and number five, like I said, Impractical Jokers movie with around two to three, like. I've heard a lot of good things about it, like from word of mouth and Twitter. Like, I'm surprised. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. I mean, pretty spot on lately, though. You're, yeah. doing, you're doing pretty good lately. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Yep. Uh, now it is time for the IMDb Pro Top Trending segment. Oh, man, we love this app. It's our handy-dandy, just amazing product that everybody needs to be subscribed to, especially if you're involved or just interested in the entertainment industry because it's it is totally worth it, guys. Um, the top trending movie this week is still Parasite. Hulu is going to be so happy when this thing hits. Oh, um, man. Uh, the top trending show is Lock and Key. I still want to check that one I out. I know. Me too. That was in one of the top ten lists. Yeah. I'm like, nope, haven't seen that one yet. Exactly. Still got to do it. Exactly. And the top trending.
trending star is Ana de Armas, who is in No Time to Die. So, makes sense. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Definitely. Definitely. Well, anyway, guys, that is our episode of Inside the Crazy Ant Farm this week. Thank you so much for tuning in and getting a little crazy with us. We got to thank our guest one more time, Austin Winsberg, for coming on the show and talking to us about everything. Zoe's extraordinary playlist. Yes. And, I mean, just advice. Oh, so good. I hope everybody enjoyed that interview. Be sure to follow him on social media. Follow us on social media as well, at Crazy Ant Media and on our personal handles, myself, at JLo Fantastic. And Crazy Ant Guy 1970. That's right, that's right. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast anywhere you listen to your podcast. Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, YouTube, and so many more. And be sure to visit our website, crazyantmedia.com. Didn't get to plug the shirts at the beginning oh, of the show man. because he was just so ready to talk about the douchebags. <laughs> but it's okay. It's okay. We got some good stuff to talk about, though, with the shirt website. Um, from April, or from March 4th to March 8th, you can get free shipping on anything you purchase on our merchandise website, guys. So please be sure to take advantage of that. Yes. You can get all of the new designs. We just put up a hands-down design now. So be sure to check those out. We got the Holy Molies. We got the Hell Yes. We got New and Improved Bunk. We got our podcast logo and just so many great things. So be sure to check out all of those amazing products because they're definitely worth it. I'm just going to say I love every single one of them. No, yeah, totally, totally. We wear them. You should wear them. Exactly, exactly. And we love the one and only Oprah!